1: it's business time, baby.
2: The Sala Monster sounds aww. It's such good shit.
1: Mama Monster conquered a like fighting a woman. Oh my God, we're only an hour in. We have two more
2: hours of this. Come over here and fight me. Delete. You have been beat up properly. <laughs> Woo! My brother and I went to go see Toy Story 4 in 2D IMAX on Friday night. Very enjoyable. Uh, Lots of laugh-out-loud funny moments, Uh, actually a lot of them in this movie. The entire theater was uh, laughing multiple times, and I thought that the addition of the new character Forky was very enjoyable. Forky is kind of the new big character introduced in this movie, among some of the other new characters that are introduced, Uh, but he's kind of the main one. He is Forky the Talking Spork. I was wondering, you know, when the movie was over, why didn't they just call him Sporky? But then they did an interview with some of the producers and cast members. And they made a good point. You know, in the movie, this character is conceived by a a small child. You know, it is conceived by a kindergartner. And so you would think that if you had a young kid looking at a spork, they probably wouldn't know what the hell a spork is. I don't know that I would. (laughs) Not at that age. So you you would probably call it a fork. So that's why it's called Forky. Also, uh, as with the other Toy Story movies... I am not afraid to admit. A little emotional there at the end. Not emotional like Raw, which might make you cry for very different reasons, but emotional all the same. I would sum it up this way. Again, I'm not going to talk about any uh, spoilers here, but I'd sum it up this way. If you are a fan of the series, go see this. You will enjoy it. Uh, It may rank at the bottom of all four if I had to rank them, but I am not going to start getting into the business of ranking uh, to- Toy Story movies, this is not a wrestling countdown, I'm not ranking them. Uh, they're all very enjoyable. I think no matter what age you are, if you're a little kid, if you're a grown adult, if you're a parent, this is one of those movies that I think anybody can watch, anybody can enjoy. Uh, but this is the one that I watched thinking, eh, yeah, this movie probably didn't need to be made, but I'm glad it was. They could do Toy Story movies until the end of time, like uh, Buzz uh Buzz Lightyear says, right, to infinity and beyond, and I would probably watch every single one of them. Uh, next up, a very different kind of movie from one end of the spectrum to the other: Child's Play. Toy Story won the coin toss, so I went to go see that one first. Uh, but I didn't have time to watch the new Chucky movie. Hopefully this week, fingers crossed. I've 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 not read too much in the way of reviews because I want to try to go into it without you know giving too much away, but. Uh, I've seen very mixed reviews on the movie. I'm going to see it anyway. I, I know going in it's not going to be a masterpiece or anything, but that's not what these movies are intended to be. You know, I just hope that they did some justice to the original. I don't expect it to be better. Uh, but we'll see. I uh, Hopefully we'll have time to go see it this week. Alright, now, that out of the way. This is episode 605 here on TBS Superstation. Oh no, I lost myself there for a second. This is episode 605 of The Sound Off. Solid Monster Sounds Off here for Sunday... June 23rd, 2019. I am the Monster. Don't forget to support the podcast by supporting our Audible partner, audibletrial.com slash Solomonster. A lot of people signed up for the trial this week. You guys know the drill. You can get a 30-day trial run of the service. See if you like it. Try it out. You get one free audiobook download of your choosing. I had to recommend one book. I mean, there's a lot of really great ones on there wrestling-wise. I'm a big fan of the Bob Holly book, The Hardcore Truth. I'm a big fan of, you know, Daniel Bryan's book is on there. A lot of great stuff. Justin Roberts, best seat in the house. So take advantage. You can get it for free right now. Just plug our link in to sign up for the trial. AudibleTrial.com slash And even if you cancel in the 30 days, the book belongs to you. You get to keep it no matter what. If you want to try the Lyft service, if you're planning on going anywhere, that link is still active. You can get... Money off your first ride with Lyft just by using the promo code monster, And then I get a couple of bucks off my next ride. Although not as much as you do. But every little bit counts. And of course, if you want to make a PayPal donation, you can always do so on thesolomonster.com. Or you can use the email address thesolomonster at gmail.com. Either way, whichever is easier. $10 or more will get your wrestling nickname and a shout out. I want to say thank you to Chuck Lunatic Lentz. The Portland pop star Paul Hamilton, John Lucan and Lopez. The Florida Freebird Brian Becerra, Yvonne Bruiser Ballack, Beast Mode Brock Joseph. The Anarchist Andrew Heller, Stephen Handyman Hallistick, Brian the Cleaver Carpenter. The Chicago Slayer Willie Eichard, Velvet Revolver Robert Murray, Recon Russell Bulware, William Godfather Goss. The Diamond Dallas Dance Machine Harrison Soap, The Maniac Moderator Jeff Lippman. What's going on, Jeff? Also want to say happy birthday to Savion. He turned 18 yesterday. Thanks for listening. And I want to give a special shout out to three-year-old Natalie Boo Leopold, who is going into Morgan Stanley's Children's Hospital for her third heart surgery. Her father says that she's being brought up a wrestling fan. She watches Ricochet every Monday night and even listens to the podcast on Monday mornings with her dad. I hope all goes well. And uh, Natalie can watch uh, Ricochet possibly win the United States Championship tonight. Although I don't think he will. But he might. You never know. I uh, also wanted to give a shout-out to Sad Dog 88 Thank you for the kind review in iTunes. We are eight weeks out from SummerSlam in Toronto. Last week, number nine, in my countdown of the top ten greatest matches in SummerSlam history, took us all the way back to 2014. So it took us back five years. Not too long. And Brock Lesnar's destruction, utter annihilation of John Cena in route to becoming the WWE World Heavyweight Champion, as it was called back then. Now you got two champions. This week, we are going back a little farther to a classic match with two of the very best in company history. That's all I'll say. That's coming up later on in the show. We start with some sad news. Adrian McCallum better known as Lionheart to UK wrestling fans, died early Wednesday morning at the age of 36, possibly at his own hand, although a cause of death has not been revealed. And it may not be publicly, although these things usually have a way of coming out eventually. Uh, But we don't know for sure. He did post a very cryptic tweet just hours before he died, uh, one that he attributed to Ricky Gervais' character, From the Netflix series Afterlife. Said one day you will eat your last meal. You will smell your last flower. You will hug your friend for the last time. You might not know it is the last time. That's why you must do everything you love with passion. He was only two months younger than me. So to hear that. To hear that news. And I I was familiar with who he was. I, I didn't know him of his work that well. Obviously I knew... You know, he was a name over in the UK. I had seen some of his matches online. uh, But even still, you know, he's a young guy. And to hear something like that, it just really makes you think about uh, how fragile this all is. You know, he was the ICW champion at the time of his death. He won the title back in December at the promotions Fear and Loathing show, uh, Title versus Retirement, where he said that he would retire if he did not win. He also worked as a trainer. Uh, His death really did rock the UK wrestling world. In particular, just a ton of messages that I've seen. A lot of tweets, a lot of Instagram messages going back and forth from anybody and everybody who knew him. Even if they just knew him a little bit, uh, you could tell that he was a big influence on a lot of people. And he was also a huge fan of The Rock. He even snapped a photo posing next to The rock star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame just three months ago. This was back in March. And The Rock... Tweeted, I think tweeted back at him at the time, and then upon finding out about his death, uh, even The Rock posted about it this week. He said, So sorry to hear the news of Lionheart's passing. He was a big wrestling star in the UK, loved and respected, never had the opportunity to shake the man's hand, but sending his family, friends, and UK wrestling community love, support, and strength. So I thought that was a very uh, classy thing of him to say. One of the things that he's probably best known for, which is kind of sad in a way, although he would have admitted the same thing, that one of the things he really is most well known for, uh, and this was the first time that I really became familiar with him, I'm sorry to say, is when he broke his neck five years ago taking a Styles Clash from AJ Styles
0: Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No necessary. Forward, by law.
2: 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It was at a Preston City wrestling event. AJ gave him the Styles Clash. Now, as many wrestlers have talked about, your instinct as a wrestler is typically to tuck your chin, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to do when taking the Styles Clash. And so when he did it, AJ landed with all of his weight down on Lionheart's neck. And he could not feel anything from the neck down. He broke his neck, as it turned out, in two different places. His doctors weren't even sure if he would ever walk again, let alone wrestle. He said, am I going to be able to walk again? They were like, we don't know. Later that year, he posted a blog, uh, famously, on his Facebook page, pleading with AJ Styles to retire the Styles Clash and not use the move anymore. And this was not done in character. I mean, they they would have another match eventually and kind of build up to that, but that's not really, the blog wasn't really done in that vein. He came off as being genuine in pleading with him and saying, look, you're, you're one of the best wrestlers in the world of all the moves in your arsenal and things you could do. Now there's been multiple instances of people getting injured or breaking their neck besides myself using, you know, taking this move. And he admitted in the blog, he said, look, the move itself is not inherently dangerous. It's actually very simple to perform. But this was also right after Yoshitatsu had broken his neck. Uh, I think there was somebody else who had possibly gotten hurt taking the move. Satoshi Kojima, maybe it was, I think, who had just gotten hurt. Uh, Roderick Strong was another one who also, I think, tucked his chin. And he didn't break his neck, thank God, but he had also been hurt uh, taking the move. And so he felt that it would just be best for AJ to to stop using it, which is a point that he eventually backed away from. I remember talking about that uh, on the podcast and even saying at the time, I said, you know, I'm not a fan of banning moves and I think that that would be ridiculous. I was not a fan of him just kind of flat out not using the move anymore. I've never been a huge fan of the Styles Clash anyway. I just don't see what's so devastating about it. Although, (laughs) I guess if you take the move wrong, it's pretty devastating. But, yeah, I'm just not a fan of that. He eventually backed away from from making that point and just said, look, you know what? In the end, it was my fault. I made a mistake. I tucked my chin when I wasn't supposed to. And, you know, that's just just the way that it goes. He was able to climb back into the ring the following year. So he defied whatever expectations even his own doctors may have had for him. He walked again. He wrestled again. Uh, He even wrestled AJ Styles again. And he admitted later on that his injury, which is kind of a weird thing to admit to when you break your neck and it's such a severe injury. But he said in an interview that it was maybe the best thing that ever happened to him. Or the best thing that could have happened to him. Because all of a sudden, because of that injury, people like me, all of a sudden they know who this Lionheart guy is. When I had never really heard of him or been familiar with him before. A, A GoFundMe page was set up to help pay for his funeral expenses goal was 6,000 British pounds, which equates to, I believe, somewhere in the range of $7,600 U.S. At last check, and this was a couple of days ago, so it may be more by now, but I did make a note here uh, that as of a couple of days ago, they had already more than doubled that amount and raised over 14,000 pounds to help pay for his funeral expenses. So a very sad story. It certainly sound I mean it sounds like you know this may have been something that he took his own life. It's all speculation because we don't know for sure, but you know, based on things that other people who knew him were tweeting, and of course that last cryptic one that he posted, nobody as far as I can tell, nobody knew of him having any other sort of health situations or health issues, although he may have and was keeping it a secret, but nobody seems to know anything about that. It's just a very sad story, you know, especially if he did take his own life. Because he had so much more of it left to live. He was so young. The horribly named WWE Stomping Grounds pay-per-view is tonight. Seth Rollins posted a tweet yesterday. WWE tweeted something about Stomping Grounds. And he quote tweeted it. And he said, best pro wrestling on the planet. Period. And... Boy did people have a lot to say about that. Now look, even I kind of tweeted a, like a, like a funny uh, a funny meme of uh, Samoa Joe laughing and somebody said to me they said, you realize you're posting a meme of this great wrestler who happens to work for WWE. How can you say that WWE does not have the best wrestling on the planet? It's a very subjective thing. I'm not saying WWE doesn't have great wrestlers. That's not what he said. He didn't say we have the best roster on the planet, he made a blanket statement saying that we have the best pro wrestling on the planet. And there's a lot of people who would define pro wrestling as being something very different than the sports entertainment that WWE puts out, especially the the quality of a lot of the shows of late. And we've heard a lot of angst from even people within the company. People leave the company and they go on about how horrible the creative process is and And how handcuffed and handicapped they are and all these different things. So for him to make that statement, look, he's the universal champion. He's one of the top stars in the company. I I wouldn't expect him to say that we don't have the best pro wrestling on the planet. But he made the statement. He put it out there. So you got to take the heat if there are people out there who disagree with you. Uh, I did consider making that sad tweet, but there was another one that was even sadder than that. I'll get to that later. So anyway, that's Seth Rollins' viewpoint on this. He believes that WWE is the best pro wrestling on the planet, and there's a lot of fans out there right now who do not agree with that point of view. He'll have his chance tonight to go out there with Baron Corbin and show us the best pro wrestling (laughs) on the planet. Now, Now, mind you, he didn't say which planet. Maybe that's, that's kind of the way out there, right? He didn't say on Earth. So maybe he was saying on um, Pluto. Is Pluto a planet anymore? I feel, I feel like Pluto isn't a planet anymore. Pluto, Jupiter, Uranus. Oh, Vince McMahon would love that one. Saturn could be any planet. Not to be outdone overnight, Will Ospreay. He quote tweeted a New Japan Pro Wrestling tweet and said, Best Pro Wrestling on the planet. Finally, a sensible tweet. So anyway, I did my predictions a couple days early. You may have seen them already on YouTube. If you did not, I'm going to play them for you now. I'm going to run down the entire Stomping Grounds card here. If you're listening to this before the pay-per-view, it'll be a good uh, preview for you. I'll throw in some predictions and thoughts on what I think uh, might happen tonight. This runs about 35 minutes or so for those of you who already heard it, or if you just want to skip ahead, there's your timestamp. And uh, after we do this, there's a lot more news to get to. But right now, here are your Stomping Grounds predictions for tonight's pay-per-view. WWE Stomping Grounds is this Sunday, although you would never know that, after WWE accidentally blasted out a push notification to people's phones on Friday night telling them that Stomping Grounds 2019 starts now. Watch the action live on WWE Network, a full 48 hours in advance. These kickoff shows are getting ridiculous now. The show takes place in Tacoma, Washington, which is the site of the infamous Booker T. Buff Bagwell main event on Raw that officially killed WCW dead once and for all. Hopefully the stomping ground's name will be dead once and for all after the show is over. One and done. Kind of like Fatal 4-Way, Great Balls of Fire. In case you didn't know, by the way, the first hundred times they said it on TV this past week, Stomping grounds is where it's time to kick ass and take names. That's the line Vince McMahon either came up with himself or approved. You know he came up with it himself. He had to. Because no doubt he thought it sounded cool. And what he doesn't realize is that it immediately becomes uncool the minute you overuse it and force people to say it over and over and over and over again every single week. Michael Cole, he's like a pull-string doll on television, saying that line over and over again. His show was originally going to be Backlash and take place on Father's Day last weekend, but the Saudi Arabia show fucked everything up, Not, not just Goldberg's head. The NXT TakeOver show that was supposed to take place in San Jose was bumped up a week and moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut, so it wouldn't fall on that same weekend. And the Backlash show ended up being a victim, too. It got bumped back a week. And it moved from San Diego to Tacoma and was renamed Stomping Grounds. And as I said on Twitter when Lance Storm tweeted that fans cannot get invested in these new shows and these new show names like Great Balls of Fire and Stomping Grounds because they don't have uh, kind of the equity of the more established uh, pay-per-view names. I look forward to next year's hybrid show called Stomping Balls. Maybe they'll merge the two of them together. Maybe that way they'll they'll pick up more fan interest in these shows.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now you wanna get mixed up in the family business? Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday.
3: with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com
2: no purchase necessary bwl prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus tickets have not been selling well for this show what a, what a shock they were even doing two for one deals at one point maybe they still are i, I don't even know if uh, that's still ongoing possibly uh, i was just looking again a little while ago on the ticketmaster website and all ringside rows are pretty much gone Uh, But there are a lot of blue dots on the map where seats are still available, kind of spread out throughout the Tacoma Dome. And I say good. Good. When you put minimal effort into making a show feel special, the fans should reciprocate in return. One way to do that is to simply not buy tickets to the show. It also looks like the entire side behind the hard camera is tarped off. Uh, It says no seats available at all when you roll over all of those sections. Not a single seat is open, and I think, I, I do think they do that a lot on uh, their their shows these days, where entire sections are tarped off, usually in that area behind the hard camera, but if the demand was there, they could easily sell out a lot of those, even if they keep one or two sections open for, you know, logistical purposes, whatever the reasoning is, if the demand was there, they would sell those sections out, and and literally the entire side appears to be closed off. And speaking of putting in minimal effort, it is also rematch with most of the top, actually all of the top matches being rematches from either the last pay-per-view or the last, uh, the most recent Saudi Arabia show. And rematches can be okay, I'm not saying all rematches are evil. You know, if they are rematches of interesting matches. None of these matches are particularly interesting or exciting, so it just reeks of killing time until we get to SummerSlam. We have a show we're committed to doing, so let's just get this over with. Maybe that's why they put the push notification out the other night. They were hoping, hey, maybe we'll just put the pay-per-view on now, people won't notice and we'll get this thing over with as quickly as possible. But I think that's probably how a lot of fans feel going into this show. Let's just get this over with. Like like married couples, men who have been married, you get to a certain point in the marriage when it comes to sex, just get it over with. We have to do this. She wants a kid. Let's just get it over with. That's where the fans are at right now with some of these WWE shows. And it shouldn't be that way. You should be looking forward to it. You should say, hey, man, look at this card. This is going to be amazing. I have faith. This is going to be an amazing card. Now, sometimes you set your expectations so low, show ends up impressing you. There have been kind of B and C tier shows where... People didn't have a whole lot of excitement going into it. And when it's over, it's like, hey, you know what? That was a pretty good show. Maybe that will be stomping grounds. But boy, have they done the bare minimum to get people really invested and interested in this show. This is a completely unnecessary show. Kickoff match right now. We don't know, as I am recording this anyway. We don't yet know the kickoff match. Uh, There's a couple of good candidates here, starting out with the Cruiserweight Championship, which... Sometimes it's on the kickoff show, sometimes it isn't, can go either way here, but we've got Tony Nese defending the title against Drew Gulak and Akira Tozawa, Drake Maverick, your new, uh, well, he was the new 24-7 champion, he has since lost it. He made the announcement on 205 Live that since both men technically won, since Gulak and Tozawa technically won in the Fatal 4-Way match two weeks ago when they both pinned each other off the superplex, that they both would be getting a shot against Tony Nice. Uh, To be honest, you know, I look at the Cruiserweight stuff and I'm wondering, again, where's Buddy Murphy? Buddy Murphy is supposed to be on the SmackDown brand. I I guess maybe they're just waiting. Maybe they're going to do something with him and Aleister Black when Aleister Black finally debuts. Buddy Murphy will debut too, but he'll be the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial first opponent for him. Although I wouldn't mind seeing Aleister Black and Randy Orton. You know, Randy Orton's not doing a whole hell of a lot right now. I think that could be a good... Uh, kind of initial big feud for, for him, but if they were going to keep Buddy Murphy off television this entire time, why take the title off him in the first place? There was no point in taking the championship off of him at WrestleMania. But I'd like to see them give Gulak a run with it. I'm picking Drew Gulak to win this match. I was going to go with Nice initially, but you know what? I'm going to go with Gulak. He's sort of the resident shooter... He's had really good matches, not just on 205 Live, but against guys like Kushida recently in NXT. I think it's time for the man to get his own run. Give that man the purple belt. I'm going with Drew Gulak. We've got the New Day, speaking of just completely unnecessary matches. Xavier Woods and Big E back in action, taking on Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn. This is the match I could see end up being on the kickoff show. This is the best candidate, I think, to, uh, to expect in that slot. It seems thrown together for the sake of being thrown together, although I guess you could justify it by saying Big E is looking for revenge on the man who temporarily replaced him in the New Day and then turned on his brothers. But that all just feels so forgotten at this point. You know, there was a time after the turn when Kevin Owens turned on Kofi and New Day and went, you know, back to being a heel, although you could say he never really wasn't a heel, that Big E was out with an injury and he was on social media tweeting not comedy nonsense but actually tweeting like you know when I come back basically I'm gonna kill this guy you know he's gonna come back and and get his revenge and and then of course we saw Big E and I love Big E to death but we saw Big E and it was right back to being the old Big E you know with the gyrations and the funny faces and any any semblance of kind of a serious nature to any of this went right out the window so that's sort of a forgotten story at this point uh Kevin and Sammy you know these two just can't quit each other they're always attached at the hip in whatever they do in this company. I was kind of hopeful that when Sammy came back, they'd keep them on separate brands, let them do their own thing for a change. Nope. Nope. Tried and true. Let's just go back to doing the way we've been doing things the last few years. You know, when they die, they're going to stack them up, one on top of each other in the casket. <laughs> they, These two are in dire need of a of a win. They've been beaten like a drum on television every week. The idea that Kevin Owens was earmarked for a WWE Championship match at WrestleMania before Kofi Mania took over is comical now in hindsight looking back on it. Uh, And there's really no good reason for them not to win this match. So I may end up looking like an idiot for this, but I'm going to pick Kevin and Sammy just on the basis of they need a win. And New Day loses nothing by losing this match. We have Bayley defending her SmackDown Women's Championship against Raw Superstar. Alexa Bliss. Things didn't work out too well for Bailey the last time these two feuded, but I, I think the outcome is going to be different this time around. That's why I'm picking Bailey to win. Uh, I actually think they've done a nice job of building this relationship on screen between Alexa and Nikki Cross, where you just know that Alexa is using this woman, and you're waiting for the moment for Nikki to realize. And unless they swerve us and we come to find out that Nikki knew all along and she is somehow playing Alexa. Instead of Alexa being the one to play her, uh, Alexa was spreading gossip on TV this week about Bailey. And you know when when Bailey was out doing commentary for the Raw Women, or not Raw? I guess it's Women's Tag Team Titles. I guess they could be defended on either brand. Uh, not that they they're, they're worth a shit, but you had Alexa and Nikki. Challenging for the women's tag titles on Monday night. Bailey was at ringside. And there was a a distraction cause where Bailey and and Alexa were kind of, you know, yelling at each other and engaging outside the ring. And it caused a distraction. And it caused Nikki and Alexa to possibly lose the tag team titles or their chance to win the tag team titles. And Nikki was very upset about this backstage when the match was over. She said that I'm gonna be in your corner. I'm gonna be in Alexa's corner on Sunday. To make sure that you leave as the new women's champion. Let us not ignore the absurdity of Alexa Bliss, a Raw star, being allowed to challenge for the SmackDown women's title. Let's let's just not cave into this notion that there is still any real semblance of a brand split. Because there isn't. It doesn't exist. This whole thing is dumb. And that may be the biggest reason why I don't think there will be a title change. You've got a woman challenging for the championship who does not even belong to that roster. Bailey wins this match. I'm going to say Bailey wins this match likely off of uh, a backfired assist from Nikki, but Alexa has already won the verbal war. That line that she used on SmackDown during her Moment of Bliss segment with Bailey where she called her a placeholder who peaked in NXT, that cut deep. That cut Bailey right down to the bone. Because it's true. And it wasn't all her fault. She had no help whatsoever from the booking the moment she got called up, but she does feel like a placeholder champion. Who did peak in NXT. So that comment probably hit a little too close to home. But Bailey still retains here. I, I do expect Sasha Banks to be back soon. I know she's filmed stuff for the video game, and it seems like it's just a matter of when. Uh she's under contract for a while, so it's not like she could really go anywhere. So I, I would expect her to be back soon. And there's always a chance that, you know, if she's outnumbered Bailey here on this show, which she is, uh, that Sasha could show up. If let's say Bailey's being ganged up on when the match is over or something like that, that Sasha Banks could reemerge and, uh, come back to help her friend. Although I think she'd be better off, if she does come back to help Bailey at some point, she'd be better off turning on her. Because when Sasha comes back, I do think the best role for her is as a heel. Challenging Becky Lynch going into SummerSlam. We have Samoa Joe defending the United States Championship against Ricochet. This is the match I'm most looking forward to on this show. They've done a good job in recent weeks of having Ricochet rack up some wins. On Raw Monday night, he won a fatal five-way pinning Miz. Uh, to become the number one contender for Joe's title. Uh, Rey Mysterio is due back shortly from his separated shoulder. I really don't think that they had to take the title off him in the first place if he was going to be back so quickly. I mean, Brock Lesnar went months between title defenses, and that was in theory a far more important title. And yet Rey Mysterio misses, what, three weeks? Maybe four weeks? Has to forfeit the championship on TV? I mean, it's ridiculous. But that being said, this could still set something up cool for SummerSlam. And that is the first ever WWE meeting one-on-one between Ricochet and Rey Mysterio for the United States Championship. Now, these two met in Lucha Underground. It was almost like a passing of the torch between the two of them. They met in Lucha Underground when Ricochet was Prince Puma. But I, I would not have Joe... Drop the title just yet. Not, not in Ricochet's first title match. He's been winning lately. That's great. He can take the loss here. Come back next month and either win the title then, or maybe Ray comes back and they set up a three way for SummerSlam and have Ricochet win the championship there. But had they just kept that title on Ray and not taken it off him, they could have built Ricochet up slowly for a championship match one on one with Ray at SummerSlam. And have him drop the title to Ricochet there. But that's, again, that's neither here nor there at this point. I predict Joe to retain here. I think he should retain. But I do think the money match for SummerSlam is Ray and Ricochet. Heavy Machinery. Well, I mean, to the extent that we even have money matches anymore in WWE. I mean, what does that even mean? Uh, Heavy Machinery challenges Daniel Bryan and Rowan for the SmackDown Tag Team titles. I'm a fan of Otis and Tucker. More so Otis than Tucker. Uh, This is their biggest match to date on the main roster, but they're a comedy team, and that's how they've been portrayed, and Daniel Bryan went from being WWE champion just a few months ago to being one half of the tag team champions. Wrestling in a match, by the way, that could be another candidate for the kickoff show. Uh, So he was the WWE champion. A few months later, he's one half of the SmackDown tag champions, you know... Just to what? Lose the heavy machinery? I mean, I love those guys, but no. No. And they'll have other opportunities. You know, heavy machinery's only been on TV for, when you think about it, really, it's only a few months. Still very early in their run. They'll have other, they'll have other chances. Brian and Rowan should win. I think they will win. And so they're my pick. Then we get to Becky Lynch. Defending her Raw Women's Championship against Lacey Evans. They finally acknowledged Lacey's service on TV this week as a U.S. Marine. Uh, they used to mention it occasionally in NXT. But I believe that's the first time it's really been brought up on the main roster. It, it doesn't match or, or jive at all with the character that she portrays on TV. But I think it's worth mentioning. you know, For anybody who thinks that this woman lacks toughness or she's too soft. That said... I was done with this feud a month ago. It has to end. They've used it to try to establish Lacey very quickly on TV, because I'm sure they're very high on her. I'm sure Vince McMahon takes one look at her, and he's high as a kite on this woman. That does not mean that she should be the champion. And I believe it has to end with Becky Lynch cleanly retaining her Raw Women's title. Because of Lacey, she went from being Becky Two Belts to Becky Red Belt And to strip her of her one remaining title, to give it to Lacey Evans, would be stupid. Becky is still one of your star attractions. May not always seem like that when she comes out on TV. Those reactions, it's not quite what it was before WrestleMania. But still, she is positioned as one of the star attractions on either brand. She's one of the biggest stars in the company. You're going to take the other title off of her? And Lacey, again, Lacey only debuted just a couple of months ago. The only outcome here should be Becky Lynch retaining her championship. In a rematch of their WrestleMania rematch on Monday Night Raw last month, I bet some of you forgot that happened, Roman Reigns takes on Drew McIntyre. Uh, I think the Shane McMahon show, I, I said this last week, I'll say it again, it is completely overdone I will give credit where credit is due. That was a good segment on Monday, though, with Heath Slater coming in. Shane celebrating backstage with Drew and the revival, and they're drinking champagne and they're eating. And Heath Slater comes in. He says, "Look, I need a raise. I got kids. I got to support them. What are they paying these guys? That they have to come beg for a raise? He's, uh, I've got kids. I got to support my kids." And Shane turns him down and sends him on his way. Then he gives Drew a little wink. Now remember. Drew and Heath have history. Obviously, they were in 3MB for, for a very long time. So they go back a long way. And Shane kind of gives Drew a little wink. And off, Drew goes into the hallway. Heath's on the phone with his wife. He's got his wife on speakerphone. Going to give her the bad news. Overcomes Drew. He's he's portraying this, this sense of, uh, not regret, but just he's very sad. He feels sorry, which is the worst thing you could feel. for. I feel sorry for this person this person is so pitiful he feels sorry for heath he reaches into his pocket he pulls out some dollar bills heath's like no 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 i i don't i don't need your money drew insists then he drops the money on the floor heath bends down to go pick it up and drew beats the shit out of heath slater like a like a giant asshole just a great heel i thought that was great even better were Dash and Dawson coming out to break things up while picking up the money and stuffing it into their own pockets <laughs> may make, make make that money while you still can because I'm sure they're still one foot out the door when their contracts are up, but they're picking the money up off the floor. Having Roman Pin drew as as quickly and as decisively as he did at WrestleMania was a mistake. That match was a disappointment the people i I was in the building, and I could tell you the people were so disinterested. I think that came... It might have come right after the Kofi match. So that may have had a lot... That and the fact that it was a seven-hour show probably had a lot to do with the lack of enthusiasm for, for a match that had nothing on the line. It was just a regular singles match. It was a Raw TV match. So it really isn't all that surprising that people were not really that interested in the match. But people were so disinterested, they started doing the wave. Just a waste of a match. But... They wanted to give Roman a big win back from his, his fight with leukemia. But it did McIntyre no favors. Here's their chance to make up for that. Even though Roman uh, lost at Super Saudi Showdown because of a Claymore kick from McIntyre, he just lost to Shane McMahon. So a lot of people are probably looking at this going, well, this is a slam dunk win for Roman. He's coming off a loss to Shane. He's going to lose again. Yes. Yes he should. The end goal should be Roman, and I'm sure it is, the end goal here, and maybe they're going to drag this thing out to SummerSlam, but the end goal here probably is Roman destroying Shane McMahon, getting his win back, and ending this freaking feud once and for all. But Drew should get the win here, and I think he does. I'm picking Drew McIntyre to win over Roman Reigns. I'm I'm betting against the big dog. A dangerous move, I know. But I'm picking McIntyre to win, especially if the goal, and maybe it isn't, but if the goal is to get him to a universal title match sometime in the next few months, maybe even next month at Extreme Rules, or at SummerSlam, or whenever it may be, against Seth Rollins, then beating Roman should be a no-brainer.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family
2: We've got Kofi Kingston defending the WWE Championship inside of a steel cage against Dolph. It should have been me, Ziggler. He should have said, it's gonna be me at stomping grounds. Then he could have joined his his own boy band. Uh, Dolph and Kofi in their careers have had dozens of matches against one another, dating all the way back, I looked this up, dating all the way back to their dark match at a heat taping in 2008. So when I say dozens of matches, I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) These two have wrestled each other a lot. Okay, a lot of matches. And they've had some great ones. Their match at Super Saudi Showdown was not one of them. Inside the cage, I think they should have a very good match. Maybe they steal the show. But I cannot find it within myself to be even the slightest bit enthusiastic about any of this. We know Dolph is a placeholder in route to whoever the actual person is who is going to dethrone Kofi, whenever that may be. It will not be at stomping grounds. All the times over the years that I thought, you know what, this is it. This is it. This is Ziggler's moment. They're going to give him the ball to run with it, and then they would yank the ball right back from him. Ten years of this. Ten years. A decade. Of start and stop, start and stop with Dolph Ziggler. And they expect people to suddenly buy this guy as a credible threat? Why? Because he's been he, he he's been attacking people from behind and he cuts a bunch of whiny promos? All of a sudden we're supposed to buy into this guy as a credible challenger? You know, Kofi was also around for about the same length of time. And not a lot of people ever saw him being WWE champion. But the fans took to him. It was the right moment. Ali went down with an injury, they plugged Kofi into his spot, and Kofi Mania just took off. You can't predict these things. At the beginning of the year, who would have ever predicted something like that would happen? Who would have predicted that Kofi Kingston would be challenging and winning the championship at WrestleMania? That people would be most looking forward to that story going into WrestleMania. It was the best built, best book story going into WrestleMania this year. I guess other than you could say the Becky and, and the Rhonda stuff, you can't predict these things. But it was a rare case, so close to WrestleMania, which is also pretty unusual, that they went with their hot hand. Yeah. They, they saw the crowd reaction and they decided to go ahead and run with it. What a concept. <laughs> we hear you let's follow along and give the people what they want can't always do that but in this case it was a great story got a great payoff at Wrestlemania but with Ziggler he never had his shot yeah they put the world title on him when he cashed in money in the bank and then a month later he got kicked in the head by Jack Swagger and that was it even still I I doubt very seriously that championship would have stayed on him for very long. I just don't think they ever saw him at that level. And maybe he was too good for his own... I've heard people say before you know, about guys who were very good at making other people look good or selling big moves. Kurt Hennig would oversell everything, but it was comical. It was entertaining to watch. But... And this is not a universal thing. I mean, Shawn Michaels, I think, was also in his prime very good at this. And he ended up having a great career and becoming one of the, the, the best of all time. But it could also work against you. Where they see you as somebody, hey, you know, this good really excel. This guy really excels at putting other people over and making their shit look good. So let's just use him in that role. And that's sort of what Dolph's career has been defined by. It's It's been less about getting him over... And more about putting him with people that he can make them look good and help get them over. So, you know, him him kind of being that kind of performer may have actually worked against him more than anything else. But his big moment just never came, and it never will. I think it's pretty safe to say that I don't think it ever will. He is a person you plug in there, as they have been doing, for about a month or so. And the only reason he even got the title match at the Saudi show is probably because Kevin Owens... Maybe he didn't want to go to Saudi Arabia. Well, we need a WWE title match, so what are we going to do? I know, we'll plug Dolph in there. Well, hey, I'm sure he got a good payday out of it. It's not like there was some big, uh, I doubt there was some big creative meeting where they said, you know who we need in this spot? Dolph Ziggler. That's who we need. That's probably how he ended up in this spot in the first place. So they plug him in there for a month or so, and he goes on TV, oh, it should have been me, it should have been me. Yeah, five years ago. Five years ago, maybe it could have been you. I guess Vince didn't think it was such good shit. Unfortunately for him. Tough break, pal. Kofi Kingston retains. And Baron Corbin defends the. Defends. I'm getting ahead of myself here. God forbid. Baron Corbin challenges Seth Rollins for the Universal Championship with special guest referee. Well, we don't know. Special guest referee is to be determined. So exciting! Is this main event pairing between Seth Rollins and Baron Corbin that they are selling the match, and really they're selling the show, almost entirely around this this mystery of who the guest referee is going to be? The guest referee for a match that nobody cares about. Paul Heyman claimed on Raw that he would not be the referee because you would have to be, in his words, a dumbass to want that spot given how Seth Rollins on Monday was running around mowing people down with a chair, anybody who he thought might be open to being Baron Corbin's pick to be the referee. Beat up Elias with the chair, he beat up EC3 with the chair, he beat up fucking Eric Young. He didn't do anything wrong. Beat him up with a chair. Brock Lesnar is the likely choice for this role. We've already gotten boombox Brock. I could easily see referee Brock. But of course, it wouldn't make any sense at all. If it is Baron Corbin's pick. Because if you're Baron Corbin... Let's say you win the Universal title... And I don't know what stage of hell that would be. You know, and I... Look... I... I am half joking when I shit on Corbin. Not totally joking. I think Corbin is actually a capable heel. And there are times when he's cutting a promo... And shitting on the fans... And it's actually kind of funny. My issue is that he's boring. And he does not belong... In main events, week after week after week. I don't want to see him in main events. I don't want to see him being the focal point. He could be a perfectly capable heel on the show. Maybe he can be the Intercontinental Champion, the United States Champion. Create his own title, the Applebee's belt, whatever. That's fine. But it's him in this position that I cannot stand. But... They're not doing him any favors if they have Brock Lesnar as his choice to be the referee. Because think about it. If he wins the universal title, the minute you win that title, what's to stop Brock Lesnar from immediately laying waste to this guy and cashing in? So if he picks Brock, he's an idiot. Then again, this is the same Baron Corbin who tried to use a steel chair in his last title match and almost got himself disqualified. And that he argued with the referee until he got rolled up and pinned. So, you know what? Choosing Brock would probably fit his M.O. Or, if it's not Brock, and I was thinking about this, reluctantly, but I was thinking about this, it could be a setup for Shane McMahon to become the referee and try to screw over Roman's best friend by screwing him out of the championship. Yeah, we don't have enough Shane McMahon on TV. He's not feuding with enough people. Let's let's add Seth Rollins to that list as well. In the end, Roman could come out, help even out the odds. Seth wins in the end and retains the title. But no Brock. Brock ends up just not showing up. People think he's going to, but they never actually said he would be on the show, so it's not false advertising, and Brock never shows up. I would not discount the possibility of inserting Shane into yet another segment that he has no business being in. But we need Corbin... Out of these main events, I fear we're not done with him just yet because, spoiler alert, the advertising for Extreme Rules next month has the main event as Seth Rollins and Baron Corbin in a tables match. Yes, serving tables at Applebee's. Anyway, let this be a case of the card is subject to change because three matches in a row of this is three too many. Seth Rollins is my pick to retain. I don't think I'm, uh, I don't think I'm being overly uh, dramatic here with that pick. I would wager that about 95 plus percent of you listening are probably picking Seth Rollins to win as well. Now, one last thing I wanted to mention here, and nothing has been announced for the show. Uh, maybe there'll be a new Firefly Funhouse segment. Maybe there won't be. But where might Bray Wyatt fit into this? Could Bray Wyatt be the referee? It's possible if they wanted to kind of swerve people, if they wanted to shake things up a little bit, make things a little more interesting, in a, a made event that uh, interesting is certainly not the word I would use to describe it. That's one way to do it. We have yet to see Bray in an arena setting. We have yet to see Bray back in the ring. We've seen the, the Firefly Funhouse segments. We've seen Bray wearing the sweater and, and, and the man bun. We've seen the Fiend. We've seen glimpses of the Fiend in the new mask, but we haven't actually seen him in the ring any week now. He could debut any week now. Now, I've said before that I think you got to give this guy the fiend, whatever you want to call him, you got to give him a a memorable debut. You got to think Kane in 97. This guy's got to have an impactful, memorable, sinister debut. And I think you put the championship on him Not long after he comes back, maybe you build to it over a period of a few months, but I think the title should be the end goal. He could be the top star, one of the top two or three stars, let's say he's on Raw, on the Raw brand, or really on either brand. If you're going to go all in on Bray this time, then do it the right way. Certainly don't do what you did with him before and have him cut spooky promos and then lose every single match that he's in. This guy could be big. And I don't think it'll be very long before he's turned babyface because the fans are not going to boo this guy. (laughs) I don't think. But that's how I'd like to see this new Bray persona kind of debuted. But there's another way that you could go with it. Again, I don't know logically why Baron Corbin would want to pick him to be the referee. But let's say he were to end up being the referee. I don't think he will be. If he's going to be the referee, then it's got to be Bray wearing the sweater. It's got to be good guy Bray. And maybe at some point he gets pushed around, he gets pissed off, Corbin, you know, punches him, smacks him, does something that really pisses him off. (laughs) He has the hurt in the heel gloves, right? Maybe he puts the hurt glove up to his ear, lights go out, come back on, he's got the mask on and again, I don't know how the hell you would do that because if he's wearing a sweater and he's, you know, dressed up that way, it's going to take more than the lights going out for 10 seconds, I think, for him to be in the full, you know, his full heel gear I just don't think it makes a whole lot of sense. You could probably do something like that if you wanted to. That's not the way that I would re Brock, or uh, Bray rather, on this television show. But there are people saying, oh, maybe it's going to be Bray. Could be. Could be. But I think Brock and Shane are still the two most likely candidates to end up in that referee spot. But I don't think Seth is dropping the championship, at least not until SummerSlam. And certainly not to Baron Corbin. You know, even losing it back to Brock Lesnar. I just don't see what that accomplishes. People are talking like they just... It's almost like a foregone conclusion that when Brock cashes in, he's getting the belt back. I look at it the complete opposite way. I think Brock Lesnar is going to end up being one of the rare money-in-the-bank losers. Like John Cena was, or Baron Corbin was. I think it's way more likely he cashes in and doesn't win the championship than, than him winning the championship, because what does that accomplish? After so long waiting to get the belt off of this guy, just to put it back on him, there's a lot of things you could be doing with Brock. He doesn't have to have the title. So I hope that's not their plan, is to just have him cash in and, well, he's got the championship back. Well, so long. You know, see you in a month. I I just don't see what that accomplishes. So you all know, goes without saying, there will be a review, as there is every month, for these pay per views, Stomping Grounds Review will be up on the YouTube channel late tonight, early Monday morning. I might go live. I might do a live stream and take some phone calls. If I do, I will uh, make that decision later and let you guys know on Twitter. So follow me on there during the show tonight, do some live tweeting at Solid Monster, and then you can check out the full Stomping Grounds Review uh, on YouTube after the event is over. The blocks for this year's G1 Climax in New Japan were announced uh, last Sunday, right after the podcast dropped, naturally. So I didn't have a chance to talk about it, but it is shaping up to be one hell of a tournament. Uh, For those who don't know, the G1 is the greatest tournament in all of wrestling, every year. It is just a month of incredible matches done round-robin style, so everyone gets to face everybody else. There's two blocks, there's an A block and a B block, 10 wrestlers each, with each one earning points for each win, two points for a victory, one point each for a draw, and if you lose, you are strapped to a chair with your eyelids taped open and forced to watch Raw without fast-forwarding. So there is great incentive for you to win your matches. The top point-getters wrestle each other in the finals with the ultimately the G1 winner challenging for the IWGP heavyweight title at the Tokyo Dome on January 4th at Wrestle Kingdom 14. Uh, The champion, in this case, Okada, he is also in the G1. It's kind of like the way the Royal Rumble used to work in its first few years. You know, Hulk Hogan, for example, was the WWF champion, and yet he was in the Royal Rumble in 1990, and he was also... Actually, Macho Man was the champion in 1989, you know, and he was in the Rumble as well. Kind of a similar idea. The champion is in the tournament here. Now, if Okada were to win, and he has won before, he's won twice before, although it's been, I think, five years since he last won. But if he was to win, he would then get to pick his opponent at the Tokyo Dome. So here's how the A block looks. It looks looks stacked if you look at this lineup here. Uh, Like a lot of those divas back in the late 90s. We've got Okada, Tanahashi, Kota Ibushi, who somehow still has a neck after that match with Naito. Will Ospreay making his very first G1 appearance. Kenta, also competing in his very first G1. Zack Sabre Jr., Sonata, Evil, Lance Archer, and Bad Luck Fale. Uh, New Japan has announced that Tanahashi and Okada will wrestle on the opening night of the tournament in Dallas on July 6th, the first time the G1 is opening in the United States. Why they waited so long to announce that match, I don't know, especially since I've heard stories that they've been struggling to sell tickets. You know, they're, they're far from sold out. That could have been a big selling point. You know, the first ever Tanahashi Okada match on U.S. soil, I mean, it is now, uh, but you're so close to that July 6th date. I'm not sure why they didn't announce this at least a month ago. Also, Kenta takes on Kota Ibushi, which sounds pretty nuts. That show will air live here in the U.S. on Access Television, so if you have access, you will be able to to access the show live if you have that network. Zack Saber wrestles Yoshihashi at New Japan's Kazuna Road Show this Tuesday. If he loses, uh, he loses his spot in the G1, and Yoshihashi will take his place. I, I don't expect that to happen. The B-Block is not as stacked, but still has some pretty big names, including Tetsuya Naito, John Moxley, the new uh, IWGP United States Champion competing in his very first G1, Jay White, Tomohiro Ishii, Juice Robinson, Jeff Cobb, Hiroki Goto, Shingo Takagi, Chi, and Toru Yano are all in the B-Block. Moxley being in the B-Block and not in the A-Block means no matches with Okada Uh, Tanahashi, Ibushi, unless he were to make it to the finals, which he won't. uh, AEW apparently made it very clear they did not want Moxley or they were barring Moxley from appearing on the Dallas show, which is an A-block show. So that could have been why they put him in the B-block, or maybe they simply wanted to give the B-block some weight and not put everybody in the A-block and not burn all of those potential matches for Moxley in the span of, of four weeks. Although, I suspect that his time in New Japan is going to be very limited. Because once AEW debuts on TNT, I don't know that he'll be allowed to do dates anymore for for New Japan. So, he may not get the chance to do any of those matches. Uh, July 28th. I looked at the schedule here. July 28th is the day that we get Moxley against Naito. Uh, The other one I'm looking forward to, as far as Moxley matches are concerned, Moxley and Torriano.
3: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It'll be wild in a totally different way than the match with Naito will be. Uh, and, and I was going to say, I'd love to see Moxley and, and, uh, and Suzuki. But Suzuki is not in the G1 this year, which is very disappointing. And the finals will take place on August 12th. That is the day after SummerSlam. So who, who wins? Who wins the G1 this year? Well, I mean, take your pick. <laughs> I mean you have a lot of a lot of options here. You know, would they do Naito Okada in the final with Naito winning and then wrestling Okada again for the championship on January 4th? I I mean they could, I don't think so. You know, Okada winning and picking his own opponent would be would be different. Naito winning, uh Ibushi winning, or even Will Ospreay winning. I think it's one of those four. I've i I've narrowed my choices down from a field of 20 to a field of four. <laughs> Probably the same four most people are thinking of. But if I had to pick one, if you put me on the spot and said, look, you got to pick one person here to win the G1 this year, who do you think it's going to be? I'll pick Naito. Uh, but I do hope, I do hope, and I, I plan to cover more of the tournament this year. I thought I, I did a, a pretty good job last year. I couldn't cover everything. I'll try to cover as much of it this year as I can it really is just the best pure wrestling all year that you will find anywhere. It's not really as storylines driven Not to say there aren't storylines in the G1. There absolutely are. They, they may be a little understated. But there are absolutely storylines that flow through the G1 that lead to other things or, or that build to a big emotional final match depending on who's involved. But it really isn't storyline driven. It's really, it's just pure pro wrestling. And so if that's your thing and that's what you're into, I guarantee you, you will not find better pro wrestling than you will see here in this G1. And if you're more into the entertainment aspect of it, Toriano aside, uh, I'm not going to say you won't enjoy the tournament, but that's just not really what this is about. But if you're into that and the athleticism and all that, it's it's wrestling bliss. It's so much fun to watch. It's a lot to take in. I mean, it's four or five straight weeks of just nonstop, constant wrestling. And again, everybody wrestles each other. Some shows are bigger than others. But it's a lot of fun. You know, even if you can't catch all of it. And if you subscribe to New Japan World only one time each year, even more, I would say, than the Tokyo Dome in January, I would say that those two months, the months of July and August, that is the time to do it. AEW President Tony Khan appeared on the Stone Cold Podcast with Steve Austin this past week, or I guess it would be the uh, Steve Austin Show. Austin's podcast had been on hiatus for a long time, I think all year, really. This is a, this might be his, his first podcast of the year. Uh, so here are some notes coming out of it. The TNT show will be two hours and live each week. That's been the rumor, but now it's confirmed. Two hours and live each week starting this fall. He would not reveal the day of the week just yet, but on Tuesday... Uh, There was news online, I saw it on PW Insider, that AEW filed a trademark application for the name Wednesday Night Dynamite. This is after previously many, many months ago applying to trademark Tuesday Night Dynamite. So it is likely that, it's been likely that Tuesday or Wednesday is going to be the night of the week that the show will air, and this new filing may give us our answer as far as which night of the week it's going to be. Now, there will be a tag team tournament once the new show debuts. Teams will be competing for a first-round bye in the tournament. He thinks, uh, Tony Khan does, that the Young Bucks winning the AAA tag team titles worked out very well as AAA, in his words, did the best television rating the company has ever done by a wide margin. And he's not wrong. Nearly 5.5 million viewers... Triple A's highest audience all year higher than their previous record by about a million viewers. Now think about that. Five and a half million viewers. Ross struggles to stay above two million viewers lately. And that's in a country, you know, with, with AAA with a far you know a smaller population, certainly than the population that we have here. Five and a half million viewers. He also said that the TV show will emanate. From various locations, not just one like TNA did for so long in the Impact Zone or NXT does at full sail. They're going to move around. Eventually they'll do some international shows. They will not be focusing much on house shows. He didn't outright say that they would not be doing them. But you could tell he's not really big on them. He, he doesn't feel they're a big money maker. He, doesn't, he also doesn't want to just put guys on the road. You know, Part of the appeal, I think, in AEW is the idea that you're not going to be run into the ground... Like you might be with that WWE road schedule. That's going to be a huge uh, hook, I think, for a lot of guys who might be looking to bounce from WWE to AEW. Or somebody who's being recruited by WWE who might instead go to AEW, not just for money reasons, but because the schedule is going to be a little bit easier for them. So he says, you know, even if they do house shows at some point, he's not, you know, guys aren't going to be working five to six nights a week, at least not for them. Uh, And ideally, he would like to get to a point where they're doing between 100 and 120 shows each year. Far less than what WWE does. But you can see where that would have more appeal for somebody. And let's say if you're somebody with a, you know, not a huge name, but you're a name. WWE has shown interest. AEW has shown interest. And let's say by that point, AEW is off and running and they're doing well, you know, live on TNT every week. So you've got the television exposure there. If it comes down to money and schedule, if the money is even comparable, it comes down to schedule, I mean, maybe some guys just want to do nothing but work, you know, if you're, especially if you're a single guy, no kids, no significant other, and all you want to do is just wrestle, there might be a certain appeal in going to WWE and just traveling every week and working every night, but it could come down to schedule, and it could be a case where guys are going to look at that and go, look, I don't want to work that schedule, I'm going to go to AEW. I'll make comparable money for less dates. Hey, sign me up. So you can see where they may have an advantage there. And he also mentioned there will be no offseason. He doesn't think wrestling fans want an offseason. They like their wrestling. They like their wrestling done right. But there will be no offseason in AEW. And I've talked about the whole issue of an offseason before. It's, it's just, you know, AEW is in a position where they might be able to have an easier time at pulling that off. But even they, you know, they have this television deal now with TNT. I assume it's for 52 weeks of television a year, unless there was some discussion about there being an off season. Clearly there wasn't. So even AEW now is in a position where if you have a television contract, like WWE has with NBC Universal and with Fox, it is not to do SmackDown 30 weeks a year or 40 weeks a year. Part of the appeal and the reason that Fox sprung for WWE and was so interested and found it so appealing is the fact that it is round, year-round, 52 weeks a year, unlike any other sport, any other television show. I mean, there are very few television shows that go 52 weeks a year. You know, there's no sport Baseball doesn't go 52 weeks a year. Football doesn't go 52 weeks a year. The NBA doesn't go 52 weeks a year. TNT is well aware of that. So there's a certain appeal in that. You can't then just turn around and say, hey guys, change of plans here. We're going to change our whole business model and we're going to take six weeks off or we're going to take two months off. That's not how it works. That's why every time somebody brings up the idea of an offseason... I don't even really give it much thought anymore because it's not practical. And maybe that's what Tony Khan realized. But the biggest takeaway for me from this interview had nothing to do with Tony Khan. It had nothing to do with AEW. It was what Steve Austin had to say about his uh, disastrous interview with Dean Ambrose on the WWE Network three years ago when Ambrose was the WWE Champion. Now, you guys have heard me talk about this before, how I thought Austin was wrong for doing what he did. Putting Ambrose on the spot like that late in the interview. Basically saying that the man is, is coasting. I think the words he used were resting on his laurels. I'll never forget the look on, on Dean's face when he said that. <laughs> just he looked, He just looked like a deer in headlights. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. You know, if you feel that way, if you've got that kind of criticism... Not, not not just for a guy as high up on the food chain as Ambrose was. Ambrose was the champion. Austin should know all about that spot because he was in that spot. Long time ago. You take that shit off the air. In private. If you feel that way. You know, like, if an old vet... If an old veteran said something like that to Austin back in his prime. When he was the champion. On live television. In a live television interview... He was blindsided by it he wasn't expecting it maybe he doesn't believe it to be true maybe he feels it's like a character assassination but here's Bruno San Martino interviewing him on T in, in in you know Bruno's uh Bruno's box or whatever is his talk show would be I don't know whatever his talk show would be called and he's telling Steve and by the way Bruno was actually no fan of Steve Austin so I could absolutely picture Austin being infuriated by Bruno calling him out on TV for being uh, you know kind of lewd and, and uh, not being a fan of all the cussing and everything else but if he called Austin out on TV for something similar oh I think you're resting on your laurels you know I really would like to see you go out there and be more serious about your job and show more fire and be more of a go-getter how do you think Austin would have felt about that he would have flipped his shit so Austin talked about this And he said that the interview has haunted him ever since the day that it happened. This is what he had to say. And I want to give a hat tip here to Raj Geary of Wrestling Inc. uh, for putting this transcript together. So I didn't have to write out everything as I was listening to it. But this is what Austin had to say about the podcast interview with Ambrose from, uh, I guess it would have been three years ago now. Says it was a rough podcast. I've been carrying around a thousand pounds on my back ever since it happened. I felt so bad about that interview and I was leading it. I take the fault of it because I'm there to get people over and make them come off like a million bucks. We just came off on the wrong street and kept taking left turns and never got back on track. Uh, He had his reasons and I had mine. For all this time, I felt like shit about that interview. People said the Stone Cold podcast got canceled because of how bad that interview was. No, I fulfilled my commitment. That's why the podcast stopped. And Austin noted that Moxley's fans were crapping all over him. Meanwhile, his fans were taking his side. So it was kind of pitting the fans against each other. Austin said he thinks the interview, uh, he thinks about it almost every day. And eventually he was able to get Moxley's phone number from somebody through a mutual friend. He said, we had the best 30-minute conversation. Because there was never any animosity towards us. I didn't know how he felt about me. I thought he might hate my guts. In fact, that's not true. Uh, he said there are times when things just don't click. Like one really bad match he remembers having in WCW against Sting. He said now he's back on the same page with Moxley and that he expects him to actually come down to Los Angeles at some point uh, to do another podcast with him. He says, this has haunted me for so damn long. People just think I'm this guy and there's this Darth Vader force field around me where I don't feel things. I do. When I've not made somebody look the way they're supposed to look, that haunts me. So now that we're back on the same page, I am looking forward to talking to John Moxley. Now Moxley, I believe it was in the interview he did with Wade Keller, said that he was misled by one of the producers for the network uh, about the podcast. When he told him, he made it very clear to this producer, whoever this person was. Because this was the other part of the interview. It wasn't just the part later on where he called him out for resting on his laurels. uh, But earlier, like the first, maybe not half, but like the first 10 or 15 minutes of that interview was absolutely brutal. It was like trying to pull teeth because Austin was trying to go back into this guy's childhood. He was trying to go back into his past. And Ambrose, uh, recently in the interview with Keller, said that he talked to this producer... He made it very clear he did not want to talk about his early days. He did not want to talk about his childhood. He did not want to talk about his upbringing. There's been stories that you know, he he was out on the streets and horrible things may have happened to him or his mother was a drug dealer. I don't know how much of that is accurate. But clearly, there were things that happened in his youth that have shaped him and that he would rather not think back on and would rather not discuss publicly. So he told this to the producer. He was assured that they would not ask about that. And then the first thing that Austin asked him about was about his upbringing. Now, I don't think Austin did that on purpose. Uh, It just sounds to me like there was a breakdown in communication somewhere. And this producer probably, you know, fucked him, basically. Or just didn't tell Austin this. And at that point, you know, from there, Ambrose basically just shut down. And the whole thing went off the rails. Uh, then Austin got on him for all the other stuff you know towards the end, and that was at a time when again Moxley was on this show. he was on w w e s own network as their champion, representing the company, and he even said, "You know at that time, I'm working twice a night because guys are out hurt. I'm working this show in the opening match, I'm going, and I'm working this show in the main event he was He was the workhorse of the company back then, I think he had set the record that year or the following year for Most matches of anybody on the roster. This guy was was a beast on this roster. And he's talking about how at the same time I'm being handed crappy scripts with crappy dialogue. And he was in this weird position where he just didn't feel comfortable shitting on the company. Which he could have done. Shitting on the company while he was the champion. So he was in a no-win situation. He couldn't open up in the way that he could open up now. Or at least that's how he felt. He was trying to be respectful. He said that if the Austin interview was a phone interview, he would have hung up on him. But he's sitting across from him on live TV. Not a whole lot you can do. You can't just get up and walk away because that's not going to be a good look. And you'll have everybody saying, "Oh, it's an angle." They're building to, uh, they're building to Austin against Mox or against the Ambrose, right? That's what people thought when Austin interviewed Brock. That's why Vince McMahon got so pissed at the time. They were teasing a match between Austin and Lesnar that Vince McMahon knew there was no chance of happening. But I thought it was actually very cool of Austin to sort of admit what he did and, and admit that this has bothered him for so long. He's aware of it. He's, he's very conscious of it. And just take the hit and say, look, uh, this went very badly and I'd like to make up for it. Because people argue with me, like, what are you talking about? It really wasn't that bad. You're blowing it out of proportion. And now you have Steve Austin saying that this interview has haunted him for the last three years of his life. So clearly something went haywire here in this interview. And I hope he does get Moxley back on the show, and this time they can talk about anything they want without any restrictions. Monday Night Raw was live from L.A. This past week we had almost 4,500 votes in the Twitter poll. 20% thumbs up, 16% thumbs down. 64% of you did not watch. Of the percentage of people who did watch, they had more thumbs up than thumbs down this week, which is a step in the right direction. But there is absolutely no reason to believe that they can maintain that. Let them prove me wrong. But this week's show did have some good things, uh, which is more than I can say for most weeks. It had more good things than usual. But one of those things is not this wild card bullshit, they are not even trying to act like there is a limit of four wrestlers who can appear, like the number of wild cards, like only four Raw stars can appear on SmackDown in any given week, and only four SmackDown stars any given week can appear on Raw, there is not even, there is not an ounce of effort even being put in to try to maintain that anymore, four, remember that's what the limit was going to be, it was going to be three, And then Lars Sullivan popped up in Vince McMahon's office and he said, well, we'll extend that number to four. So the number was four. We had, by my count, ten. Ten individuals who were part of the SmackDown roster appeared on Monday Night Raw this week. We had Roman Reigns, again, who basically is a Raw roster member with the occasional cameo on SmackDown. This is comical to me. He's a SmackDown star, in theory. He never, he doesn't feel to me like he even shows up on SmackDown, but he's on Raw pretty much every week. So he is a Raw star masquerading as a SmackDown roster member. He makes the occasional cameo on SmackDown because you knew they never wanted to move him in the first place. Kofi Kingston, he's the WWE champion. In theory, the biggest star on the SmackDown roster, their number one guy. There he was, along with Big E. And Xavier, the entire New Day, on Raw this week. Bayley is the SmackDown Women's Champion. There she was, on Monday Night Raw. Daniel Bryan and Rowan, the SmackDown Tag Team Champions. All of their champions. I guess Finn Balor was was MIA. Every other champion from SmackDown was on Raw this week. Then you throw in Kevin Owens. You throw in Elias. You throw in Carmella, who was in disguise in the front row with R-Truth for the 24-7 stuff. Our truth at least, it was made clear, you know, as the champion that he could appear on both brands so long as he has the the 24-7 title. Why should that extend to Carmella, though? What does she have to do with that? Ten. Ten people. You know, and a few people, last time I made this comment, they got upset with me. I said, there is no brand split anymore. They just haven't announced it yet. Well, guess what? Now you have proof. There is no more brand split. Stop trying to pretend that there is. It does not exist. We had an opening Fatal 5-Way on this show, which I already talked about earlier when I did the pay-per-view predictions. But it was a very good match. Elimination match, Fatal 5-Way to determine the number one contender for the U.S. title. Braun Strowman was running wild until... You know, Cesaro ganged up on him, and Bobby Lashley speared him, and Ricochet hit the 630 off the top rope, and pinned Braun Strowman, who lost his shit after he got pinned. It went after everybody. So it came down to Ricochet and Miz. Ricochet wins in the end. He goes on to face Samoa Joe tonight at Stomping Grounds. Sammy and Kevin. Sammy Zane and Kevin Owens had a show, a talk show, with Baron Corbin. Baron Corbin introduces EC3 as his choice for the guest referee at stomping grounds for his match against Seth Rollins. And in that brief little window of about 10 seconds that maybe some people thought, well, wait a minute, maybe they're actually going to do something here. Something meaningful. They're going to put EC3 in a meaningful position. That didn't last very long. It lasted all of 10 seconds before he got mowed down by a steel chair multiple times from behind by Seth Rollins. So the New Day comes out, they pick EC3's dead body up off the floor like, like Weekend at Bernie style, moving his head up and down in approval of a match, pitting New Day against Owens, Zayn, and Corbin, which for reasons left unexplained was a two out of three falls match, which New Day won in two straight falls. I think Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's is more alive than EC3's career right now. AJ Styles. We haven't seen him in a while. He's been nursing uh, an injury, it might be a back injury. He was backstage. I think he was with the trainer backstage and in walks Gallows and Anderson, right? His old buddies, the club reunited here on this show for whatever reason. They were dressed up as doctors. I guess they're gonna they're gonna heal AJ. And AJ was very happy to see them. And they were talking about how you know it was here in Los Angeles in this very building three years ago when you guys debuted and, and beat up the Usos. And Anderson and Gallows thought that AJ was about to call them the best tag team in the world. But instead, AJ said, actually, that title goes to Jimmy and Jay. And they were not happy about AJ saying that. AJ said, you know, you guys have gotten too comfortable. He was wondering, you know, when was the last time you were even on TV? He told them to get serious. It was almost like Vince McMahon sending a message via AJ Styles. Carl Anderson has dropped a ton of weight. He's all cut up now. He's in the best shape of his life, or at least the best shape of his career. I'm sure he appreciates this idea that he is not taking his job seriously, even if it is just a scripted line into the show. Oh, it's just part of the entertainment. Yeah, you know, this company has a way of weaving messages in between the lines. After this pep talk, by the way, in the back, Anderson and Gallows, they lost to the Usos. In a three-minute match. Because it's a three-hour show. We just don't have enough time. You got three minutes. But if they still haven't signed their new contracts, then I guess we're in for more of this. Seth Rollins wrestled Daniel Bryan in the main event on this show. This was something that was announced on social media just a few hours before Monday Night Raw. A big match like this, just out of nowhere, gets announced. And you would hope that people are made aware of it, and there's a certain appeal in it. Although, if you look at the ratings, I guess it didn't really matter. They didn't bother promoting this in advance. But Brian was on Raw this week. He wrestled Seth Rollins. The match ended after 90 seconds when Rowan interfered for the DQ. That brought out the Revival, the Usos, the New Day, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn. A giant brawl breaks out, which thankfully led to the match being restarted with everybody else banned from ringside. So we got another seven or eight minutes of action. Not nearly enough for anything memorable. It would have been better had they just not done the DQ bullshit in the first place, and they could have gone even longer. But they made the most of the time that they had. Uh, I thought this was good. Rollins won with the curb stomp. And after the match was over, Corbin laid out Rollins with the end of days, and he posed with the Universal Championship high above his head to end the show. A frightful sight to end Monday Night Raw. Now, SmackDown Live was from Ontario, California. The very next night, Twitter poll had over 2,500 votes. 16% thumbs up, 14% thumbs down. 70% did not watch. So, the second night in a row, that thumbs up was slightly higher than thumbs down. But that's, let's see here, 7,000 votes between both polls this week. And those didn't watch numbers are disturbingly high. Disturbingly high. Uh, just a few highlights here. I already covered parts of this show earlier during the uh, Stomping Grounds predictions. I, I do have to say, you know, Matt Hardy, there was one scene in the back where Matt Hardy was walking out of Baron Corbin's uh, dressing room, and he sees Shelton Benjamin, and he calls him Senor Benjamin. And I thought, that was one of the highlights of the show this week, which isn't saying much, but that was one of the highlights. We had a moment of bliss... Segment with Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross and Bailey was their guest. And again, I talked about this earlier. That line that Alexa used on Bailey, where she called her a placeholder who peaked in NXT. Oof. (laughs) Whoever came up with that line, that cut. That cut deep. I actually thought that wasn't a bad segment. The authors of Pain are still alive. We saw them briefly in the back. Again, I think they were coming out of Corbin's dressing room. They bumped into the iconics, so maybe they're gonna challenge for the women's tag team titles. Uh, we had the Kabuki Warriors also are alive. They were in the back with Paige. They confronted the Iconics, and Paige challenged them to put their titles on the line, and the Iconics turned them down, and Paige said, Well, I got a match booked between the Iconics and Asuka and Kyrie Sane for WWE when WWE visits Tokyo next weekend. And if they win, if the Kabuki Warriors win, they will then get a tag team title opportunity. Well, I sure hope they win. Uh, Although if they don't, I guess they go back into obscurity. I don't know where they've been. I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they took a vacation. Maybe they went to Disney World. I don't know, but hopefully now they're back because there's no reason for them not to be on TV. There was an entire segment of Shane McMahon talking that I just skipped right over because life is too fucking short. But it did lead to a tag team match with Drew McIntyre and Elias against the reunited team of Awesome Truth, The Miz and R-Truth. And they had about as much success here as they did against The Rock and John Cena. Miz ate a Claymore kick, took the pin for his team. Two more Claymores for good measure after the match. Because Drew is the one they're trying to get over here, not Miz. Backstage, we see R-Truth after the match, hightailing it. He's trying to get out of the building. He goes out into the parking lot. He's racing to find his Uber. And he's looking for Carmella. And out of this car, the car pulls up in front of him. And out walks referee Dan Engler. And I'm shocked I even know this guy's name because they don't bother giving any personality to these referees anymore, let alone names. But it's referee Dan Engler in his full referee gear. He, he steps out of the car and R-Truth is like, well, I didn't know you work as an Uber driver. And he basically shook his head as if he was admitting, yeah, it's my second job. I'm surprised impact officials didn't suggest that to uh, Killer Cross as his second job that he should get for himself. Drake Maverick was dressed up as Carmella. R-Truth didn't even notice at first. Then he turned around and saw her, or him, and he pulled the disguise off. Truth tried to get away into the car. Maverick rolled him up, put his feet on the car. I was going to say the ropes. He put his feet on the car for leverage, and he pinned R-Truth to win the Green Monster, to win the 24-7 title. He jumped in the car. He says, I'm getting married, and he drove off. And in fact, he was getting married, legitimately. Drake Maverick got married this weekend to Renee Michelle, who competed in the May Young Classic a couple of years back. In fact, she was trained by the one and only Gilberg, Dwayne Gill. Gilberg spotted her at a wrestling show years ago and asked her if she wanted to give it a try, and she took him up on it. Usually it's the other way around. If you want to become a wrestler, you go to a show, you seek them out, you say, hey, I want to get in, I want to train, who do I talk to? Here, he just took one look at her. And said, hey, how would you like to do wrestling? I'd be more than happy to train you. Eh? I mean, Gilbert, hey, you gotta shoot your shot, I guess. It didn't work out for Gilbert, but anyway. uh, So Renee and Maverick, they get married. Maverick is the one who apparently pitched the idea of shooting an angle at his own wedding for this stupid 24-7 title that has been very entertaining, but it's still stupid. Uh, So this was filmed after the actual nuptials were over. So, no, it was not part of the actual wedding. They got married, and then they shot the segment. Uh, EC3 was his best man, Braun Strowman, and Jeremy Borash were also part of the wedding party, for real, legitimately, not just in the segment. TJ Wilson and Natty, they were guests at the wedding. You could see them in the background. You could see Matt and Reby Hardy. Uh, King Maxwell, their son King Maxwell, who once pinned Rockstar Spud on an episode of Impact. The two made amends, and Maxwell served as the ring bearer. For the ceremony. I thought maybe they would have him win the title. And then uh, he could face off with Nicholas. To find out who the better children's champion is. Maverick and his wife. The way this played out. They kiss. They're walking down the aisle. All of a sudden Maverick runs into a referee. Who is blocking his path. (laughs) Full referee gear. And R-Truth. Who's wearing his usual stuff. But he has a purple. I think it was a purple tie around his neck. He rolls up Maverick. And pins him in the aisle on the rose petals and everything, to win back the 24-7 title for what? What is this, the uh, fourth or fifth time, probably, for him as the champion? Third time? Fourth time? It was a a, a goofy angle, but it was the sort of thing that you would see, you know, when they were doing the hardcore title, 24-7 stuff with Crash all those years ago, and that's what I was hoping they would get back to. See, I'm all about this. So I've got nothing but love for these segments, because... To just keep doing them in the building and in the back and in the you know the locker room area. That's so played out. Who cares? It's when they leave the building and they go to these different locations. I mean, this guy agreed to shoot a, a, an angle at his fucking wedding. You gotta respect that. You gotta respect her for even allowing that. And she was already teasing on social media that she wants a divorce. Poor guy. But I love this stuff. It's, it's senseless, mindless stuff. But if they're gonna do it... You need to do it in unique settings like this. So I think you know this was great and I'm a big fan of what r Truth is doing. I think he's got his role on the show and he's he's a good dude and it's hap- I'm happy to see him having all this success. All of his segments on YouTube are doing millions of views. You know, if they start putting out new r Truth gear, he may he may become one of their top merch sellers, you know. He's just a likable guy. He's able to do whatever you hand him no matter how horrible it may be. And sometimes turn horrible things into things that aren't so horrible, which I think is kind of what he's done here with this 24-7 stuff. So I thought this was great. And in the second two out of three falls match in two nights, we'll see how long this lasts for. I, I saw a news item earlier that it's this new decree from Vince McMahon that no more wrestling during commercial breaks. Guarantee you this lasts all of a week or two. But that was the edict, apparently, that came down this past week. No more wrestling during commercial breaks. So the idea, I guess, of doing these two out of three falls matches is you can have one fall end. And then in that buffer period before the next fall starts, you go to a commercial. And then when you come back, the action resumes. And I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with the idea that, you know, let the match play out on TV for the TV audience to see it. You know, don't let half the match go by off television when you can't see anything. Or you put it in a little box with no audio while the commercials play in another box. I just think that's dumb. So if that is the edict, then I think that that's that's fine. But at the same time, you can't do two out of three falls matches every single week. But that's their MO, right? They'll take something and they'll drive it into the ground. So if we have more two out of three falls matches on TV this week, you know why. This was the second one in two nights. Once again, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn got swept. Two falls to none. Didn't even give them a fall. Not on Monday, not on Tuesday. What a bunch of losers. WWE Champion Kofi Kingston teamed up with Universal Champion Seth Rollins to beat the two of them. Rollins pinned Owens with the curb stomp to win the second fall. I was trying to figure out, what did these two guys do? To get buried the way that they have been these past few weeks. Cause Sami Zayn, it felt like had some momentum with that new gimmick. Not everybody was a fan of it, but he was being allowed to go out there and, and, you know, say these things and cut these promos and he was kind of entertaining at it. And then the last few weeks, it's like he's just back on the, on the back burner and him and Owens are just being beaten like a drum. And I've been trying to kind of rack my brain to figure out what what could be the explanation for this. Is it building to something? You know, I picked them to win against New Day tonight at stomping grounds. I have a funny feeling I'm going to look like an idiot for that prediction, but I said they've got to win at some point. They've got to get back on the winning track. New Day can afford to lose. I don't think these guys could afford to lose much more often before they lose all credibility. In the eyes of the fans, whatever they have left. And to think Kevin Owens was going to be the guy to challenge for the championship at WrestleMania. So, I don't know if it maybe has to do... Maybe Owens really did say, I'm not going to Saudi Arabia? Which is why Dolph Ziggler was put in that spot. You know, maybe they're holding that against him. I mean, hell, maybe... Maybe Sammy really wasn't supposed to mention AEW all those weeks ago. And he's being punished for that. I don't know. I don't think so, because I still think that was all planned. And it's not like Sammy has taken the fall. He didn't take the fall in either one of these matches. It was actually Baron Corbin who got pinned on Monday. And it was Kevin Owens who got pinned here on Tuesday. So I don't have any good explanation for it. It could There could be no explanation for it. It could just be, hey, this is the way we wanted it to go down. We wanted the babyfaces to look strong. But they're doing so at the expense of these two guys who could be, you know, big heels on the show, but you got to give them something. You know, they, they desperately need a win. And they're not being given anything right now. Hey,
3: this is Wade Keller inviting you to check out my podcast, The Wade Keller Pro Wrestling Podcast. There's several new episodes each week. All you have to do is search Wade Keller in Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. Most recently, I had a two-and-a-half-hour interview with John Moxley. Here's a snippet of one big chunk of the interview where he talked about how frustrated he was trying to get that Brock Lesnar match at WrestleMania to be what he wanted it to be.
0: Brock had And I was like, dude, we have the
1: opportunity. We have a street fight. We can do anything. I'll take any bump you want. Literally, I'm begging you to f-ing kill me. Please, powerbomb me in the front tax a hundred times. We don't need all that. Like he didn't—he he did not have the mentality of like trying to steal the show at all. Did not give a s***.
3: So check out all two and a half hours. Just search Wade Keller and download parts one and two. And also check out my recent interview with ex WWE creative team member Matt McCarthy, who responded to both John Moxley and Batista's recent comments about the non wrestling writers on staff in WWE.
0: Let me remind you, and I think a lot of people here will agree, NXT is way
2: better than the WWE. NXT from this past week, Adam Cole and the Undisputed Era opened with a promo in the ring. And I'm watching all four of these guys out there. You know, Cole now is the NXT champion. They're teasing that all the members of the Undisputed Era now are going to try to bring all the gold into the fold. When you think of how heavily featured this this group is and how all four guys have been featured on this brand, it would be a huge blow for them to be called down suddenly to the main roster. You know, Vince McMahon woke up one day and told Triple H, Hey, pal, I want those underwear era guys. You know, but they're... They're so stockpiled with talent down there at the p c right now, it probably would not take very long for them to adjust. I was thinking about that there's so many guys, even guys that I forgot that they have under contract that it probably wouldn't it wouldn't be such a huge blow you would that you might think it is because of how heavily featured that these guys are, but they vow to win all the gold in nXt There was no mention of the nXt women's championship, but all the gold they said they're going to bring into the into the fold here I hey, get Marina Shafir into the group put her with Roddy and they can you know she could be the, the resident female badass in the group you know I, I don't think that would be such a terrible idea and then she can go after the women's title although I guess she's friends with Shayna Baszler so Baszler would have to lose the title first and then maybe get called you know down to the main roster and that could that could then pave the way for her to maybe challenge for the championship although I don't think she's ready for that spot But uh, Velveteen Dream came out, followed by Matt Riddle. Adam Cole tells Matt Riddle to go back to reviewing wrestlers from the Attitude Era, which got a big reaction. And a Goldberg chant. He had a big smile on his face, Riddle did. Yeah, Riddle does not like Bill Goldberg. I think we all know that by now. Tyler Breeze then showed up. He says that he talked to William Regal. He got a six-man tag team match signed with he, Riddle, and Dream taking on any three members of the Undisputed Era. And as a one-time thing, that's cool and all, but let's please not make this a regular thing. This played out like any opening segment that you would see on Raw and SmackDown, right down to the obligatory tag team match. And because we see it so seldomly in NXT, it's fine. You know, one time, it's fine. But I hope this is not the start of a trend. Damian Priest... Made his NXT television debut, the former Punishment Martinez from Ring of Honor. As name changes go, he's he's got one of the better ones, and he's got a great look. I mean, you know, hey, six foot seven, two hundred and fifty pound Puerto Ricans don't grow on trees. This guy's got a good look. He had a cool entrance here this first week. He took on Raul Mendoza, big boot. Pushes Mendoza backwards right at the start, and he just starts pummeling him. Mendoza got some offense, and he hit a disaster kick. He hit an enziguri. He did a rope walk into a missile drop kick that sent Damian Priest out of the ring. He went for a tope. Priest caught him in midair and chokeslammed him on the ring apron. And then back inside, Priest hit a corkscrew roundhouse kick. And the crossroads for the win. I think the crossroads now the crossroads is probably the same move that Test used to use, right? Test used to call it the roll of the dice. Pretty sure it's the same move as the crossroads. I'm not a fan of him using the crossroads as a finish. I don't know. I just feel like it's it's almost like you're picking default move number three in a video game. The guy, he's kind of a bigger guy. Oh, let's have him hit the let's have him hit this twisting move that we've seen so many other people use before. I'm not a fan of that. I I actually think. Uh, the chokeslam on the apron was awesome. I mean, that really can't be a finish, I don't think. And it got a great reaction. But I do think some kind of chokeslam, some kind of chokeslam variation for him would be much better. His old finisher was a sit-out chokeslam. I see no reason why he could not keep using that move. So I would like to see him maybe adapt, keep using that or adapt that in some way and start using that as a finish. It's only his first match on TV. I'm sure things are going to change. That would be one change I would like to see. As far as debuts go, this was good. I thought he he looked good. He made a good accounting of himself here. He's going to be a player. Him and and Donovan Dijak, once he's all healed up from his uh, knee injury, those are two big guys to watch out for. William Regal announced the first ever NXT breakout tournament with the winner receiving a title shot of their choosing. A lot of indie talents in this thing, and I I liked how they included their old names in the graphic when listing each one. They would say, like, formally known as, and then they would list their old name. Uh, The bracket looks like this. Dexter Loomis, the former Sam Shaw from TNA, takes on Bronson Reed, a, well, I guess formerly known as Jonah Rock, was the name he was going by before. He is from the Australian Indy Circuit. 330 pounds. He is a big boy. A very big boy is Bronson Reed. We have the winner of that match. Taking on the winner of the match between Isaiah Swerve Scott. The former Shane Strickland or uh, Killshot from Lucha Underground. And Cameron Grimes. Better known as Trevor Lee. Who spent many years wrestling for Impact and other promotions. And he's got to be one of the favorites, I would think, in this entire tournament. On the other side of the bracket, we have Angel Garza, formerly Garza Jr., because Vince McMahon has a complex from all the years of people calling him Jr. So now he takes it out on everybody else. He takes on Joaquin Wild, which they're either pronouncing this name in a very weird way, or it was just the way that Regal pronounced it when he, when he made this announcement. Uh, Like, kind of the way he used to say Umanga instead of Umaga. Because he just butchered this name when he said it. It should be Joaquin. And he is the former DJZ from Impact. The winner of that match will take on the winner of the Jordan Miles match. Uh, Jordan Miles, the former ACH from Ring of Honor, also has to be a favorite in this thing. He takes on Boa. Boa is a Jiu-Jitsu champion from Beijing, China. He signed with WWE three years ago. He's been in their system. And now he's going to make his television debut. And so uh, Joaquin Wilde will take on Garza in the opener of the tournament this Wednesday. Uh, I really like this concept. It's a quicker way to get some of these guys on TV at a time when there isn't a whole lot of TV time to go around for NXT. you know. And I would much rather they try something like this than just you know expand the show to two hours. I like the one hour length. I really don't want them to mess with the formula. I think 90 minutes could work. I mean, I, I'd be open to that. I don't think that would be terrible. But I just, I really don't want them to start just expanding all of these shows. I think, the, I like the one hour length. It's just a lot easier to digest at a time when there's so much programming that this company is putting out. You know, I feel like if there wasn't as much other programming, then I might be more open to having a two hour NXT. But as great as NXT is, I, I just I still don't want them to change that 60 minute format. We had Zaya Lee against Tenara Kanchi. They had a decent match. Little Rocky of Parts. Lee picked up the win with what Maro Ronaldo called a cavalcade of kicks. He has a way with words. Undisputed Era picked up the win in the main event over Tyler Breeze, Matt Riddle, and Velveteen Dream. Breeze was building momentum. He hit the ropes for a dive out of the ring, but Dream tagged himself in, the blind tag. When he hit the ropes, and the two argued, and when Breeze turned around, he ate a leaping knee from Roderick Strong, fell backwards, and in doing so, he clipped Velveteen Dream's knee on the way down. Strong then gave Dream an X-Plex into the backbreaker for the win, which likely sets him up as the next challenger for the North American title. You know, if Undisputed Era wants all the belts, then Roddy would be the guy to go after it. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed this. So this Wednesday, we've got the first match in the breakout tournament, plus the Street Profits are going to take on the Forgotten Suns in what I believe is a non-title match. And Shayna Baszler is going to defend her NXT Women's Championship inside a steel cage against Io Shirai. We'll see who has the better cage match this week. Is it going to be Baszler and Io, or is it going to be Dolph and Kofi tonight at uh, Stomping Grounds? We'll see. Savage tweet of the week belongs to Bianca Belair, who went off on another NXT star for a tweet that he posted referencing her, and she was having none of it. That person is Dan Matha. Remember Dan Matha? No? Well, you're probably not alone, but I do. I remember him. I remember the weeks and weeks of vignettes that they aired for him on NXT a few years ago, hyping him up like some kind of monster, only for him to finally debut and get demolished in his very first appearance by Samoa Joe, never to be seen or heard from again. I remember that, and his horrendously distracting back knee. One of the few things I remember about him from the one and only time that he showed up. Not just on his back, it was on his chest, it was his back, ugh, I mean, maybe he's got a skin condition. Or maybe he, well, never mind. In any event, he vanished. He vanished. After that, he vanished back into the recesses of the Performance Center. He has since been resurrected at the NXT live events as part of a tag team, a new tag team they're trying out with him and Riddick Moss, calling themselves the Outliers, and managed by former TNA star Robbie E., going by the name Robert Strauss, which happens to be his real name. Everyone else now gets fake names. Even Maytha who is no longer going by Dan Matha. He's now Dorian Mack. That's M-A-K. Dorian Mack is his new name. Well, Strauss posted a tweet the other day hyping up his new tag team. He said, Be ready. Hashtag NXT San Antonio. We coming strong to the Aztec Theater tonight. And with that tweet, he included a photo of himself and his new team. And Dorian Mack has this goofy, almost shocked expression on his face. I don't know what he was looking at, but it's it's funny. It's a funny picture. Well, Montez Ford, of the NXT Tag Team Champions, he noticed this too. He clipped Mac's face. You see this sometimes on Twitter. He clipped Mac's face, blew it up, and replied to Robbie's tweet with nothing but a picture of Dan Matha's face. Montez Ford, of course, is married to Bianca Belair. Well... Mac decided to respond to Montez Ford's tweet of his face by saying, your woman knows all about that face. Well, that did not sit well with Bianca Belair, who was quick to respond. And she had this to say. She said, let me address you by your government name. So, you know, I'm not with it. Daniel, don't fucking play with me my husband, or insult my marriage. I am not a topic for your little storyline or Twitter shots. Shut the fuck up, or I will knock your teeth into the back of your throat myself. Wow. You don't think she's happy, huh? I don't I don't get the sense that she's very happy. So not long after, Matha deleted his tweet, and Belair deleted hers. The old tweet and delete. Although... She was quote tweeting him, so if he deleted his tweets, then I guess it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for her to keep hers up. That That's happened to me before. Because then you're stuck with, well, what did it say? You get all these messages from people. What did it say? I can't see it. It was deleted. What did it say? So anyway, man, do it, doing the job again. First for Samoa Joe and now for Bianca Belair. Not a great start for Daniel here in NXT. Then we have EC3 winning for sad tweet. You thought the Seth Rollins tweet was sad. We have EC3 winning for said tweet. He's been on a roll with these lately, poor guy. John Cena tweeted, never stop dreaming, because he posts these inspirational tweets, right? He said, never stop dreaming, chase those dreams, or chasing those dreams, rather, requires an incredible amount of work. Never give up. That's his mantra, right? Never give up. He never did in any of his matches, not after 2003. Never give up. To which EC3 replied, dreams become dreams. Nightmares. You know, Cena is a a glass half full kind of guy. EC3 is a glass half empty. Or or solo cup, as it were. Fill it with brandy. He's all out. The man needs a refill. This right here is the kind of thing I didn't know I needed in my life. But now I don't know how I ever existed without it. Bret Hart and Corey Feldman are starring in a horror movie together. Here is the official announcement. And I'll uh, sprinkle some thoughts in here along the way. Tales from the Dead Zone, starring WWE Hall of Fame wrestling superstar Brett the Hitman Hart in his feature film debut. And Corey Feldman, and then they mentioned the different movies that he starred in, The Goonies, The Lost Boys, Stand By Me, is slated for a 2020 release. The Goonies is a classic I watched that movie many times as a kid. I'm surprised they haven't remade that the way they remake everything else. Stand By Me is another classic. The Leeches. I remember the scene with the leeches in that movie. And also, let us not forget, wasn't mentioned here, but I'll give it a shout out. Let us not forget Corey Feldman's role as Tommy Jarvis in Friday the 13th Part 4. Believe it or not, I've never seen The Lost Boys. I just, I never did. I don't know why. I heard that it has to do with vampires. I mean, I should probably watch it. <laughs> I love Fright Night, which came out, what was it 1985 or something? I love Fright Night. I think it's one of the best vampire movies ever made. So this sounds like something that would probably be right up my alley. I just, I, I never saw it. Tales from the Dead Zone is about a medical examiner conducting autopsies on the victims of a horrible car crash who imagines how they may have lived their lives. The anthology links four terrifying stories together. All four of the stories in the feature film have been shot. We are gearing up now to shoot the wraparound story in the fall, according to the director Barry J. Gillis. Tales from the Dead Zone is a throwback to movies like Creepshow, Tales from the Crypt, and Pulp Fiction. Probably the only comparison that will ever be made between a movie like this and Pulp Fiction. Uh, It does sound, based on the description, a lot like Creepshow, which is a favorite of mine, or or the old Tales from the Crypt uh, movie... TV show. But you know what the premise made me think of when I read that? The the whole idea of a medical examiner doing autopsies on the people who then, they kind of go back in time and they then feature into the individual stories of how they got, I guess how they got dead. There was a made-for-television movie that John Carpenter made in the early 90s called Body Bags. Sci-Fi Channel airs it every now and then. And it was originally going to air as a series on Showtime because HBO, I think, had the rights to or or helped create Tales from the Crypt and that was a, a success. And so Showtime was going to do something similar with John Carpenter. That would have been the Body Bags series. And then they passed on it. This was after they had already started filming. They passed on it. So what they ended up doing was they took the three stories that they had already shot and they had Carpenter play the role of the medical examiner. He was sort of the on-screen narrator in between each of the stories before they would throw it to each one uh, you saw him in the morgue with the bodies and, and whatever but they had a bunch of cameos in the different stories in that movie you know Robert Carradine was in one of them Stacey Keech uh, Mark Hamill is in that movie he plays a baseball player who loses an eye in a car wreck and then gets an eye transplant from what ends up being a serial killer And then he starts to slowly almost morph into that person or their their personality. I like it. It's a good movie. I don't know how many people listening to this ever even heard of it, let alone saw it. But if you could track down a copy of it, if you're into those kinds of movies, I actually thought it was pretty good. Continuing on in this press release. There have been skeptics, some skeptics who cannot imagine. Bret Hart and Corey Feldman in the same movie. We get messages from people who think it's a disaster. It just boggles the mind to me it's been a great idea since day one. Both are true professionals and great actors. I am happy with their performances. That, according to the director. Well, I want to know who these skeptics are. These people wouldn't know a good good cinema if it smacked them in the face. I, for one, cannot wait to see this. They already released a trailer. And it includes a couple of scenes with Bret Hart actually wielding a handgun... <laughs> He looks like a literal hitman in this movie. He's finally living up to his name. But I pulled two very short clips here with Brett, with, with uh, some acting, some audio here from Bret Hart. Here's the first one. And I know what someone's fucking lying to me. <laughs> That's what he should have said to Vince in that meeting backstage in Montreal before the match was shot. <laughs> I know what someone's fucking lying to me. That's exactly what he should have said to him. And he should have pointed the gun right in his face. And I don't want somebody fucking lying to me! And then, and then, there's this. I am a one-man wrecking crew. Just give the man his Oscar right now. There's, there's, no, there's no sense in even waiting until next year. Just give it to him right now. I love it. I am a one-man wrecking crew. Ah, uh, I gotta try to get that into my intro somehow. That's, that's great. You gotta actually watch the scene, the face he makes, too. It's, it's comical. And here's something I don't think I've ever seen before. You can pay for a producer credit in the actual movie. Now maybe this is standard practice with some of the lower budget movies to help, you know, fund them or offset some of the costs and I'm just not aware of it, but I've never seen this before. So you can pay for a producer credit in the actual movie. You can get your name in the credits of the film as a producer and even get your producer credit on your own IMDb page that they will set up for you. An associate producer credit is $95. A co-producer credit will run you $495. An executive producer credit will run you $995. Which also carries with it the potential for what they list here on the website for the the movie as profit sharing. How much of that profit there will be, I don't know. Nor do they. But you can share in the profits of the movie. If you spend $1,000. And... You can get an acting credit in the movie for just under two thousand dollars. For two grand, it includes your food and accommodations. They, because remember, in the press release, the director said they have not shot the main story yet. That kind of wraps around and, and ties all of these stories together that have already been filmed. And the shooting begins in the fall in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. You can be in the movie if you are willing to shell out two grand and you have either an acting reel that you can show them or are willing to film an audition video to show them that you have some level of acting chops, some, some kind of acting experience. I mean, I acted like I kind of enjoyed raw this week. Does that qualify as acting experience? I, I'm seriously, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of springing for an associate producer credit. I mean, it's only 95 bucks for the chance to get my name in the credits. Of a of a Bret Hart Corey Feldman movie or get my own IMDB page. I am tempted to do this. Hey you know my birthday is coming up maybe somebody can gift it to me. I'm kidding my birthday isn't until October. But they are literally selling off parts of the movie. Parts in the movie. Tales from the Dead Zone. That could be the new title for my raw review segment here on the podcast. Alright, let's get to some mailbag questions, and then we will wrap up with number eight in our SummerSlam countdown. You can email me, thesalamonster, at gmail.com, with any questions, comments, make sure you include your name and where you are from when you write in. That will always maximize your chances of being included here on the show. Tane sent me this from Scotland. He has been a listener since episode 165, so shout out to him. This clearly, what he shared here, reads to me like a joke, but with some people you just never know. He found someone moaning about WWE storylines, he says, on a WrestleZone forum, and this person decided to come up with their own storyline. He says, we think WWE writing is bad, take a look at this. So I'm going to read it to all of you right now, and I'll let you determine how, uh, how real or not you think it is, or what you think of the idea. Because it was very uh, trippy when I read it the first time. This person says, WWE is just blah. I don't watch it anymore. I just read recaps and thank God I don't waste three hours of my time. We need new stuff. Different. Exciting. I've tried to spruce up some of the uh, the spelling and syntax and whatnot here. So at least it sounds like it's uh, in English. Give up PG. This is what this person said. Just give up PG. Just that simple. For example... Becky comes to Raw to be with Seth. Vinny, apparently he knows Vince McMahon intimately enough to call him Vinny, because he calls him that throughout this entire thing here. Vinny starts showing up, making the googly eyes at Becky. Seth confronts Vinny. Vinny tells Becky, are you going to tell him or do you want me to? Becky says she will handle it. In the back, she tells Seth that a long time ago, she slept with Vinny, and had a child. Seth is distraught. Doesn't know if he wants to be together anymore. Vinny tells Seth at WrestleMania. He fights his son for the belt. Well that's believable enough. Put Shane McMahon in a championship match at WrestleMania. I could see that. Then at the big event. Everything goes black. And everyone expects The Undertaker. But no. It's Becky. All goffed out. She says, I tried to give you a chance to come back to me, but you turned on me, so I turned on you. Then Shane comes out but does not go to the ring. He says, oh, you thought you were fighting me. Becky takes the microphone and says, Seth, do you know how old I am? I have been here since your great-grandfather wasn't even a thought. I'm a witch, and you're going to meet my son Vinny and I. I guess their son. Fade to black, the lights come on, and John Cena is in the ring, all dark, and gets his bad boy on, wins, short heel run, end of story. Oh, it's not the end of that. I've got so many questions about this story. This ain't the end of this. More like the end of of, uh, his stash, whatever it was that this person was smoking when they wrote this up. So basically, he he stole the lucha underground idea of Katrina being alive for thousands of years as a as basically a witch. I'm still very confused as to exactly what's happening here. If we assume that Vinnie is Vince McMahon, then what I get out of this is that Becky is a witch who slept with Vince, and together they had a child. Not Shane, I guess I guess Vince and Linda had Shane, but Vince and Becky gave birth to John Cena, who's suddenly getting that long, elusive heel run at the age of 42. That part, at least, I can get behind. Of course, it would also mean that Rollins has been having sex with Cena's mom, which is distressing. But if we get a John Cena heel turn as the goth son of Vince McMahon and Becky Lynch, you know what? I'd watch that show. be more interesting than what we get on Mondays. Marcus... From London, England, I'm sure you've heard the news that WWE has left Sky Sports to sign a new television deal with BT Sport, which is in fewer homes than Sky, but BT Sport is also the home to UFC programming. Do you see this as an upgrade or a downgrade for WWE? Because I see this as a major downgrade. Well, from everything I can gather, and all of you UK folks out there can chime in on this because you would know better than I would. I'm sure we have a lot of Sky subscribers and maybe even some BT Sport subscribers listening to this right now, but it sounds like a a big step backwards for WWE. They're moving Raw and SmackDown from Sky Sports to BT Sport in the UK and in Ireland starting in January, and all of the pay-per-views will move to BT Sport Box office. I would be curious to know how big of a deal that even is because I would imagine that there's a lot of people who have the, the WWE network over there. But maybe it's different. You know, Maybe maybe there are still a lot of people watching on the, the, the pay-per-view channels over there. I don't know. We have a, minimum, a minimal number of people watching on pay-per-view here in this country. Uh, but that is what is migrating over to BT Sport. They've been with Sky now for decades. I mean, that goes back probably to the late 80s, early 90s their relationship with Sky. I mean, I remember that Royal Albert Hall show, which was back in, what, 1991. I'm pretty sure that aired on Sky or one of the Sky channels. So it at least goes back that far. Now, according to The Observer, Sky is in just over 8 million homes today, whereas BT Sport is only in about 2 million. But the fact is, you know, you can look at those numbers and say, wow, what a big difference. But the fact is that WWE was already hemorrhaging viewers in the UK on Sky. You know, so when I got this question, I was looking into it, and there was an article in Fighting Spirit magazine a couple of years ago. Uh, Somebody linked me to it that had the numbers to it, and it was really alarming to see. There was a time when WWE would regularly top 100,000 viewers or more for its live weekly Raw shows in the UK. But two years ago, there was one episode, I think it was in this month, it was in the month of June, so it would have been two years ago this month, there was one episode of Raw that only did about 18,000 live viewers, and that included people who recorded the show to watch later on. 18,000! Now, typically I think these days the show hovers between about 20... In 40, maybe 50, I think it's between twenty and 40,000 viewers for the live airings on any given week. Keep in mind, this is a three-hour show on Monday nights that airs live over there, which means it's 1 o'clock in the morning when Raw. So for all the complaining that we do, oh, here we go, three hours of Raw. You know, I live on the East Coast, so for me it's 8 p.m. And 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. is enough of a slog. But these folks in the U.K., I mean, they're watching Raw at 1 o'clock in the morning. So you you can't expect the live numbers to be that high. But they used to be. You know, hey, Raw aired pretty late back then too. And the numbers used to be a lot higher than they are now. They were back then, now they're not. And there is no evidence that all of those missing viewers have simply changed the way they watch the show. And they're just watching it on a delay or on YouTube. I mean, some people are. But, you know, I would say this to people. Stop making excuses for WWE. They have lost a shit ton of viewers, just as they have here in this country. And all of these people trying to make excuses for them, you are part of the problem. You are part of the problem. All of the people trying to make excuses for why WWE, they can't give tickets away to people for stomping grounds tonight. Just stop. Stop making excuses the product is bad you lose viewers because you have insulted your audience and now they're moving to a network over there or or, you know a network of stations with even less exposure than they had on sky bt sport they're also going to air a two-hour version of raw a one-hour version of raw And a one-hour version of SmackDown across all of their their various channels. Lucky bastards. (laughs) A one-hour version of Raw. Hey, sign me up. Can I get BT Sport over here in this country? I think you're going to have more people. Here's what I think. You're going to have more people who just don't watch. And they're going to start listening to podcasts like this one. To get caught up on Raw and SmackDown if they have to pay extra just to watch those shows. You'll have to pay extra for the BT Sport package above and beyond whatever you would already be paying for Sky, unless people just dump Sky en masse to sign up for BT Sport. But I sense that people wouldn't necessarily be so quick to do that. There may be other programming on Sky they don't want to get rid of. It's not just WWE. So I think this company may be in for a rude awakening when it comes to their UK audience. They may end up losing even more fans over this. They may be making more money, it may be a more lucrative contract, I don't know. That seems to be the only thing that matters anyway. Hey, we'll sacrifice a large chunk of our audience just to make more money now. Sure, hey, let's do it. But again, I I welcome any feedback from my UK listeners. I mean, what do you think about this deal? And, And will you, if you don't already have BT Sport, will you pay for it just to watch WWE programming? I'd love to hear from you guys. Max, in East Orange, New Jersey, Nikki and Brie Bella were on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon this week, and Nikki revealed that her doctors have told her she must retire from the ring and that they found a cyst on her brain. What are your thoughts on this, and if this is the end of her in-ring career, how should she be remembered? Well, let's back up for a second here. So she was on The Tonight Show. She said that she and her sister had been planning to come back to fight for the women's tag team titles which I think we all figured was inevitable at some point I thought they would have been part of the whole tournament uh, going into the elimination chamber or they would have had a match at Wrestlemania this year but I figured at some point that that was going to be the plan but during a recent checkup Nikki said doctors told her that she now has a herniated disc above the disc that she previously had surgery on and they also found a cyst on her brain She later told TMZ that the cyst is benign, which is great news, but that's still a very scary thing to hear—that you have any kind of uh, a cyst or a lesion. It's not a tumor, but like anything like that on the brain, in the brain, around the brain, you don't want to hear that. That's a very scary thing to hear, and she's going to have to have that monitored for the rest of her life because it could cause other problems, even if it doesn't eventually, you know, God forbid, become malignant. I mean, there's, you know, when you have assist on your brain. It could cause other issues. It could cause headaches. It could cause all sorts of not so pleasant things. So she's going to have to have that monitored. Now, which doctors told her that she wouldn't be able to wrestle again, we don't know. She didn't specify if uh, these were her own personal doctors or if this were WWE doctors telling her this. If she never wrestles again, I don't think that, I mean, look, I don't think she's remembered. For her in ring career, I and mean, she had success, you know, longest reigning Divas champion, all that stuff that they'll put in her eventual Hall of Fame package. My takeaway for Nikki Bella, the wrestler, is that she improved a lot from where she was when she first started, more so than her sister. And in doing so, she screwed up her neck and had to have surgery. And she came back from that, and she deserves, I think, a lot of credit for that. She didn't have to come back and wrestle. She and Brie could have been doing other things for the company in ways other than wrestling. And and they were. And that, I think, is where she'll be remembered most. The whole Total Divas thing. I mean, now, now now it's Total Bellas. But they were part of the original cast of that Total Divas show that just took off. I mean, the audience has has dwindled a lot over the years. But it was very popular for a while. And say what you want to about the show. It's been, what, now, seven seasons? Seven or eight seasons? They played a big part in that. They have a lot of fans out there. Oh, trust me. They have a lot of fans. They have an army of fans. Following them around and listening to their new podcasts and following all of their business ventures. Following them on social media. So this woman does not have to wrestle anymore. I don't see people clamoring to see the Bella Twins get back in the ring. The Bellas, hey, they did their thing. They made their mark. Now it's time for somebody else to get the spotlight. And if she's got health issues and she's got a freaking cyst on her brain and her doctors think it's too risky for her to climb back into the ring, then you know what? Listen to your doctors and stay out of the ring. It's time
1: for Red Hot Action! It's time for SummerSlam!
2: We are counting down the top ten matches in SummerSlam history this week. It's number eight in the countdown. A lot of people regard the 2002 SummerSlam As one of the best, if not the best, of all the Summerslams. This match is one of the reasons, if not the main reason, why. Shawn Michaels, back in a WWE ring for the first time in four and a half years. Against his best friend turned bitter enemy, Triple H, in an unsanctioned street fight. Now let's go back in time, give some history and some backstory to this. Of course, the two of them came together to form Degeneration X. In 1997, that led to Shawn's back injury, he suffered in the casket match against The Undertaker, he went in hurt to WrestleMania 14, he dropped the championship to Stone Cold Steve Austin, and he went quietly into what basically was an unannounced retirement. Triple H, the very next night on Raw, took over to lead his own version of DX, and, and try to break away from Sean's shadow. He had already been in, always been in the shadow of Shawn Michaels, He was always playing second fiddle. This was his opportunity now to break out on his own. For him, in his career, it was probably the best thing that could happen. Now notice I said that this was Sean's first time back in a WWE ring in four and a half years. It was not his first time back in a wrestling ring. He actually made his in-ring return two years earlier in a match against Paul Diamond, who at the time was going by the name Venom, in Sean's... TWA promotion, his short-lived TWA promotion down there in San Antonio. This was in April of 2000. Uh, That was a street fight too, just like this one. Uh, The same Paul Diamond that he tagged with at the start of his career and he briefly feuded with and they even wrestled each other for the Intercontinental title on the very first episode of Monday Night Raw. Diamond was, at the time, he was portraying the Max Moon character that was originally conceived of for Conan. But you watch that match against Venom, which you can find online, and you realize that Sean could have easily come back years before he did. His back was fine. And it really had more to do with his substance abuse problems. In fact, the plan had been for him to come back shortly after WrestleMania 17 for a match against Triple H. Likely it would have been at that Backlash pay-per-view the month. uh, I think it was later that same month. But I, I believe... The plan was for him or at least it was talked about at the time it was reported on at the time that the plan had been for him to either interfere in some way in the undertaker triple h match of wrestlemania or and cost triple h the match which would then lead to his return you know for the next show or maybe that he would have even been the guest referee for that match so basically wrestlemania 28 only 11 years earlier and without the cell But he showed up to the TV tapings the week before WrestleMania in the obligatory no condition to perform. And he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And he had a falling out over all of this with Triple H, who he felt didn't stick up for him with Vince. And it was bad enough that the two didn't speak for an entire year. That's when he finally started to get his life together. And he tells the story in his book about being on the couch at home, and he was just half, he was half gone. And his son at the time was about two. He had a two-year-old son who noticed and thought that, you know, daddy is sleeping, and he, he realized at that moment, you know, holy shit, my kid is starting to notice. I've hit rock bottom. This is not good. And he got on the phone, he had a phone conversation, I think that same night with Kevin Nash, and on this phone call, Nash told him, hey, you need to call Hunter, and you need to apologize. You guys need to patch this up. And he did. He, he called up Triple H, they made amends, and the two of them were back to being good friends. So now, it's 2002. Sean comes back to TV as part of the NWO. A week later, he or well, literally kicks Booker T out of the group. I, I'll never forget that segment, too, because you've got Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash, I think Big Show, maybe X-Pac, and Booker T are all in the ring, right? And you look at this group, and you know, all but Booker T have a little something in common here, and it's Booker T who they kick out of the group, and people did not, that did not go unnoticed. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of funny to look back on now, but uh, I always thought, oh, you know, he's looking at everybody in the group. Sean was in the ring evaluating everybody, and he's like, hmm, which one of these, which one of you guys doesn't belong? Oh, I know. I'll kick the black guy in the face, and we'll kick him out of the group. It's like, wow. Poor Booker T. So they kicked Booker out of the NWO. And they were teasing at the time that they were going to attempt to recruit Triple H into the group. And then after coming back, he had just come back from an injury. Kevin Nash is in that tag team match on Raw. This is in July of 2002. And his very first night back, he tears his quad. And he goes right back on the injury. I think he had just come back from... Oh my goodness, I think it was maybe like a a bicep tear, some kind of arm injury I want to say, but it's like he just came back and he tears his quad and he's been made fun of for it ever since, but that's, you know, that's a serious injury, that's not a fun injury to, uh, to endure, it's a lot of pain, you could tell he was in a lot of pain, and when he went down so too did the NWO, because the very next week Vince McMahon comes out on television, they just lost one of their biggest members of the group, and he just officially disbands the NWO for good. So they go to Vengeance, the next pay-per-view. Triple H at the time is being recruited. He's a babyface. He's being recruited by the general managers of both shows. He's being recruited by Eric Bischoff to come to Raw. He's being recruited by his own wife, or in storyline, they may have been, uh, she may have been his ex-wife at that point, Uh, Stephanie McMahon, trying to recruit him to come to SmackDown. Shawn Michaels shows up. He says, hey, if you come to Raw, we can reform DX. They just killed the NWO. I got nothing, so let's do DX instead. Do me a solid. And Triple H agrees, and he follows Sean to the Raw brand, only for Triple H, I think this might have been the next night, to turn on Sean. He lays him out with a pedigree. Then came the violent uh, parking lot assault. A few weeks later, Shawn Michaels is beaten up by a mystery person in the parking lot. It, It was like a little whodunit angle for all of a week or two. And then Michaels reveals the security camera footage that the building was kind enough to send to him. And it shows that Triple H was the culprit. It was Triple H all along who took out Shawn Michaels. And Triple H admits to it. He says, you know, you're weak, Shawn, you're weak. And Michaels says, look, I may not be the showstopper anymore, but I can still fight. And thus this street fight was made for SummerSlam. And it was thought to be a one-time thing. At least that's how Michaels kind of positioned it he may have really thought that he was going to be, it was going to be a one and done. But again, his back was fine by that point, maybe a little stiff, but it it wasn't back problems that kept him out for four and a half years. So I think, I think that he knew that if the match came off well, and it could not have come off any more perfectly than it did, that if this thing went off without a hitch, there was a pretty good chance that was not going to be the last time that we would see him inside the ring. unlike, the crown jewel match where everything went wrong actually sean was kind of the glue that held that match together Uh, my hope is that after that crown jewel match last year if anything it showed him that he should never ever get back into the ring because i don't want to see sean michaels in horrible terrible matches like that again so hopefully it's the opposite now and he realizes that his career is is perfectly fine existing as it is and we don't need to see him back in the ring again so, Sean comes out, he's in street clothes for this, he's wearing jeans, uh, which made sense, given that it was a street fight, and they had said that the showstopper was dead coming into this match, this wasn't the HBK of old, this was Sean Michaels, the man, fighting for his family. Triple H spends a good part of the match working over Sean's back, it was an easy way uh, to work this match, because every single move, every punch, every chair shot to the back, every backbreaker, the fans winced. People reacted to it. I probably winced also watching it live at that time. It was the story of the match. Again, chair shots to the back. He even gave Sean a backbreaker across a steel chair at one point. The storytelling in this match was fantastic. Between the back injury stuff, you know, it being Sean's first match back in so many years, his best friend betrayed him. He says he doesn't have it anymore. And the commentary just made this a hundred times better than it even that it it was already great, but it made it even that much better. And give credit not just to Jim Ross, who was who was fabulous here, but give credit to Jerry Lawler too. Jerry Lawler kind of like he did in the Iron Man match between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. You know, when I think back to Jerry Lawler's career as a commentator, you, you think of the two phases, right? He used to be the heel announcer who would shit on the baby faces and Bret Hart and all those people. And then in kind of the second half of his career on commentary with WWE, I think really after he came back in, in one, he was just legendary babyface Jerry Lawler. He wasn't really portraying the heel character anymore, which is kind of a shame, but a lot of the humor and the stuff that he did in the late nineties, it just was never going to fly, especially in the late, like now, can you imagine Lawler going on TV on one of those kickoff shows and saying half the shit that he said 20 years ago? There's no way. Uh, but when he had to, he stepped up his game. So I think back to the Iron Man match at WrestleMania 12. And he called that match with Jim Ross, you know, or actually it was Vince McMahon, very differently. You know, you, you would think a person like Jim Ross would be best suited to call a match like that. And not somebody like Jerry Lawler. And I remember thinking, hey, he did a pretty good job. He was more serious. Calling a, a more serious wrestling match. You know, kind of did that. There was an Iron Man match with Rock and Triple H. You know, a Judgment Day, a few years later. So this was actually a good night, I thought, for for Lawler and the announcing in general. He was uncharacteristically rooting for Shawn Michaels. He was rooting for the babyface throughout much of the match. But in doing so, what happened is, especially what what happened after the match was over, they both did a great job of really making Triple H out to be just the devil incarnate. (laughs) Like, there's no more evil SOB on the face of the earth. Than this guy, Triple H. So Michaels hit all of his signature spots. He even did the nip up late in the match to a huge reaction. He super kicked a chair back into Triple H's face. It busted him open. He did this huge blade job just wearing the crimson mask. Michaels also bled. He was DDT'd onto a chair, although not nearly as much as Triple H bled. Uh, but we got a double juice match here. Double juice. Abdullah approves. Hep C for everyone. So the fans had been chanting, we want tables earlier in the match. Later on, Michaels finally pulls one out from under the ring. He puts Triple H on top of it outside the ring, climbs up to the top rope, and does this huge diving splash out to the floor, crashes through the table. This is his first like big time match in over four years. And he maybe he really was thinking that this is it. This could be it for me. So I have to, I have to just go all out here. We got chairs we need tables and ladders and I got to hit all my big spots because I don't know how my body is going to hold up so he did the big dive through the table he also brought a ladder into the ring he hit Triple H a big one too and he hit Triple H with a diving elbow off the ladder Michael sets up for sweet chin music Triple H catches his boot he boots him in the gut sets up for a pedigree Michaels pulls his legs out from underneath and pulls off a sunset flip pin for the win nearly half an hour after the opening bell. They gave it time. They built the story. It was just nearly flawless. And the Nassau Coliseum, upon when the ref hit three, when Earl Hebner hit three, just exploded. And Michaels gives Earl a big kiss on the head when it's all over. He's so happy that he survived. You can see him mouth the words, thank God and praise the Lord. Right before Triple H, whacks him in the back with a sledgehammer. <laughs> Triple H should have said, can I get a hallelujah? But he didn't do that. Michaels now is on his knees. Triple H hits him one more time in the back with the hammer for good measure. And Jim Ross absolutely loses it. He's like, no. For God's sakes, no. Just on and on. Oh God, oh no. Oh no. Oh God almighty, no. It's like me. It's 7.59 every Monday night when I see the clock turn to 8 p.m. And he goes on, he says, I refuse to believe what I've seen. I refuse to believe that after the most courageous victory that maybe any of us have ever seen, that son of a bitch used that hammer. And the referees and the doctors roll in. Triple H gives Sean a crotch chop for good measure. And Jim Ross says that Triple H is going to rot in hell for what he did here. How in God's name can that human being be from this planet? Does he have no conscience? Does he have no heart? Do you have no soul, you son of a bitch? Do you realize what you've just done? And Michaels does a stretcher job on the way out. Not only did Shawn come back for another match after this, he came back for another seven and a half years worth of matches. He won the world title from Triple H in the first ever elimination chamber match at Survivor Series that year. A reign that lasted all of one month, and that would be the last world title he would ever hold. But I've said this before, you know, his career is very much, I look at it like BC and AD. It's like two totally distinctly separate eras. And back, it was back on, uh, I looked it up, it was episode 396 of The Sound Off. I answered a buy or sell question on Shawn Michaels' career. Pre-back injury or post-back injury? And it was a tough one because he had some great matches and great feuds and it really is what, made him as a singles performer right from the moment he threw Marty Jannetty through the barbershop window and took off as a singles heel. He had a great first half of his career in WWE. But I, at the time, I bought on his post-back injury career. I thought that that just edged out the first part of his career. Because if you look at what this man did, his first match back with Triple H here, a classic. Wins the world title and the first chamber match a few months later. Racked up classic after classic at WrestleMania against Chris Jericho, against Triple H and Chris Benoit, against Kurt Angle, John Cena, The Undertaker two different times, including what I believe to be the greatest match in WrestleMania history, WrestleMania 25, the, the mini heel turn in the summer of 05 on Hulk Hogan in one of the great segments in Raw history in Montreal with the Bret Hart fakeout. One of the all-time great promos. The feud with Chris Jericho in 2008, which they both had a hand in writing themselves. So no wonder it turned out so well. There's a lot of great stuff to point to in that second half of Sean's career. And he did all of that after uh, what at the time was a pretty crippling back injury. It wasn't life-threatening. It may not have even been career-threatening. It might have been built up as more than it was. But he came back from an injury. And yeah, he was older, and maybe as the years went on, he was a little slower. He couldn't do everything that he used to do, but he adapted. And he got to work with a whole new generation of talent. And he put on classics with them, just the way he did with people like Kevin Nash, and Vader, and McFoley and Bret Hart, and Razor Ramon. Two totally different eras, two totally different generations, and he bridged the gap between those two. But if I had to vote one over the other... I'll probably stick to that same opinion I had on on 396, and I would say I give the the edge to his post-back injury career, but it's amazing to see at that time when they were talking about it, like, well, it's just a one-time only thing, and then, you know, again, seven and a half years later, he finally decides to hang it up until Crown Jewel last year, but we can try to forget that happened. So that's number eight in the SummerSlam countdown. Next week, we are on to number seven as we count down the weeks to this year's show in Toronto coming up on August 11th. Keep sending in your mailbag questions, thesolidmonster at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter tonight. I'll be live tweeting during the stomping grounds, stomping balls, whatever you want to call it, pay-per-view, at Solomonster. and I will have a review for the show up when it is over, possibly doing a live stream on YouTube. I'll keep you guys posted on that, and uh, maybe we'll take some phone calls. Real quick, uh, two things, two last points. I, I've kind of neglected for a while now to really push and plug Stitcher, uh, which I used to do more often. So I have a note here to actually just mention to people that if you if you would be so kind as to uh, try streaming the show or parts of the show in Stitcher, uh, because I feel like I don't give them enough love. You can listen to the full podcast every week on there. But one other thing, and you may have seen the photo I posted on Twitter. I went and I bought myself. Uh, An old school, well, kind of old school. It's this uh, newer version of the old school Mortal Kombat 2 arcade game. There's this company called Arcade 1-Up that is making these arcade cabinets that are about three quarters the size of the original actual arcade games from 20, 25, 30 years ago that you would find, you know, in your local arcade or other places. You used to put the quarters in. I'm sure, you know, those of us who are of, of a certain age... Of course now you can just play any game you want to on your phone. You can buy a Switch, take it on the go. I don't even know how many people actually play arcade games anymore, but a lot of us used to. And Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat 2 is one of those games I can vividly remember playing. And you know, there'd be that one guy doing tournaments and nobody could beat him and he'd put his cigarette on the console and burn, you know, there'd be cigarette burns on there. I still remember that to this day. And you try to punch in the fatality combinations and I'd fail miserably most of the time. So I found out, I actually saw Cody Cody Rhodes and, and Brandy had bought one. And I said, oh, it looks interesting. I'd never heard of this before. So I looked into it. And as a Walmart exclusive, they have this Mortal Kombat 2 arcade cabinet. So I went and I found it and bought it. And, you know, I with my brother's help, we assembled it and put the whole thing together. And again, it, it's really cool. I bought the riser that goes with it. The riser, the official riser from Arcade 1-Up, you could probably build your own. I didn't have time or patience for that. So I just bought it. And it adds about a foot in height, which helps, because now I can stand up and play the game. If, if Without the riser, there's no way. I'd have to get a chair and sit down. And it's really cool. It's very authentic. Uh, it looks great. It sounds... Yeah, it's got the mono speaker sound, but that's fine. And uh, I haven't had too much time to play it. It's one of those things that I had a space for it. It's there. I feel like every now and then, when I feel the itch, I'll go over and I'll play it. And it'll be really cool one thing it's on the riser and it wobbles a little bit not too much but a little bit just enough to be annoying and so if anybody has any suggestions and some of you sent me some great ones already on twitter by all means let me know there were there are holes i think in the side of the riser to put screws in but there's no holes in the actual cabinet and i didn't want to start drilling holes into it so that that may be the solution it may be something i have to do at some point Uh, Those people who have said just push the whole thing up against the wall I can't there's a baseboard there so I can't I can't push it up flush against the wall that's not really an option and there's a little bit of space you know you can kind of move the cabinet around on the riser a little bit and I've tried I've moved it into I've moved it up against the back of it I've moved it up to the front to the side and this freaking thing wobbles. Uh, so if there's some kind of maybe uh, a sticky thing I can put in the little bit of space, the little gap that there is between the edge of the riser and the cabinet to maybe hold it in place, or if somebody has a better idea, uh, by all means, I'm all ears because it's the one really annoying thing I haven't been able to fix yet. Uh, but yeah, if you've not heard of these things, you know it, it, they're they're not that expensive. You know, one of these authentic old arcade games you go on eBay and people have them for sale, and Five or six hundred dollars maybe is the low end. I mean, some of them are a lot more than that. You can get a cabinet like this for three hundred bucks. You know, I think I think you pay more for a switch than you would for this thing. Uh, so if you have the space for it, and you've got a little bit of uh, disposable income, and you're into games, even if you don't game too much anymore, I don't really, you know, not like I used to. It's just a really cool thing to have. And uh, I've been playing the game, and I I have to kind of reteach myself as far as the fatalities, and, and, you know, when the little toasty head guy pops up in the corner of the screen, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do, I'm sure there's some kind of button combination I'm supposed to hit, I'm damned if I know what it is, uh, I've got the uh, EJB codes, so I've been punching those in, and I've been able to access the hidden menus like you used to do in the actual arcade so I can adjust the volume and the difficulty level, uh, although you have to be careful, I, I've been told that you could potentially brick the entire thing, which... I certainly don't want to do that, but you know, I've been uh, researching all the different codes and stuff. And there's three games in one. It's not just it's a Mortal Kombat 2 cabinet, but you've got Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat 2, and Mortal Kombat 3 Ultimate. So it's actually three games in one, and uh, it's pretty cool stuff. But yeah, if anybody has any recommendations as far as how to stabilize this thing on this riser, uh, I am all ears. I'll be back here next Sunday for episode 606 of the sound off so until then be well stay safe have yourselves a great week enjoy uh, stomping some balls tonight and i will see you back here for the review on youtube later tonight and next week for 606 take care guys the Monster sounds off. EC3 lost to Tyler Breeze. I tweeted, that sounds like something you would put on the tombstone of your career. They never should have called him up in the first place if they had no plans for him. I haven't seen a career fade this fast since Jesse Smollett. The Monster sounds off. Available wherever you
3: hear podcasts, including iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and more.
0: Want more content?
3: Visit youtube.com slash the Monster for sound off extras and more. And follow the Sala Monster on Twitter at Sala Monster. The
0: Sala
1: Monster Sala Put that cigarette out. Sala Monster sounds off.